on its chamber. Yep. Okay, members, I call the meeting to order. Uh, we are now open in public session. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to keep all members in the spotlight for the next four items and give everyone a very warm welcome to this meeting of the Education Committee. Agenda item one is apologies. Can I ask members if they are aware of any apologies? No apologies? No. no. Okay, thank you. Agenda item two is chairperson's business. 2.1 is an informal meeting note of our meeting with the Bill Office on the legislative process. Can I advise members that Assembly Bill Clarks presented the primary legislative processes to the committee in informal format yesterday, and a note of the informal meeting is available in tabled papers. Any questions or comments on that, members? No? Content? Okay, then agenda item 2.2 is call for evidence for the Integrated Education Private Members Bill. Can I advise members that as the second stage of the Integrated Education Bill will take place next Tuesday and the committee's final meeting uh, before research or for, before recess is next Wednesday, it will be helpful for the committee uh, to agree the call for evidence in table today to prepare for notification of stakeholders. Members content to agree the call for evidence? Agreed? Chair, yes? Who's that? Thanks, Deputy Chair. Pat? Sorry, Deputy Chairperson. Pat Sheehan, go ahead there. No, I was just saying content, Chair. Okay, thank you. Okay, members, that's agreed. Thank you. Agenda item uh, 2.3. Just before I go to agenda item 2.3, members, uh, just wanted to raise in chairperson's business the um, ongoing issue of post-primary transfer. Um, obviously, uh, it's my understanding that we have, we still have approximately 100 pupils who remain unplaced. Um, I just wanted to advise members, remind members, and state publicly that the Assembly Education Committee has attempted to contact AQE and PPTC uh, to attend the committee in uh, relation to these matters and, and obviously in relation to what plans are in place for post-primary transfer for next uh, academic year. Um, the a AQE and PPTC have not yet responded to uh, confirm attendance at the Education Committee and I, I just wanted to make sure that you were aware of that. Um, the focus now is obviously on working to place those pupils as a matter of urgency. Um, however, it might be worth me factually stating, um, as a, a, by way of a reminder, given the stress that this has caused, that as long ago as May 2020, this Education Committee wrote to all selective schools asking what their contingency plan for post-primary transfer this year would be in the possible eventuality that the pandemic and its associated restrictions would prevent post-primary transfer tests from taking place. Most of you haven't been on the committee at that time will all be aware that we did not receive a significant response to that correspondence. Uh, we then worked hard to conduct a, a public survey to seek views on how the post-primary transfer process should be undertaken. Uh, the, the findings of that are a matter of public record on the Assembly website. 
and the Education Committee then passed a motion in November of 2020 calling on the Education Minister to set out a contingency plan should post-primary transfer tests not be uh, possible. The, as you will know, the Education Minister did not put in place contingency plans and it was left to individual boards of governors to put forward alternative criteria um, in, in place of this. Um, on occasion, that criteria included um, criteria that the Department of Education itself expressly guides against using, and we have had the outcome that we have had. Any other members wish to comment on that briefly, or are you content with what I have attempted to um, set out as an accurate reflection of what we did in relation to that matter? Content? Yep. Sure, sure. What, is, what is the criteria that's been used that the department's expressly advised against using? Well, you have uh, examples of criteria such as um, past uh, sibling attendance, past parental attendance, matters such as that. Well, the Colton ruling has already demonstrated that that has been proven not to be um, unlawful. I couldn't really hear you there, Justin. Do you want to say that again? The Colton, the Colton ruling has already demonstrated that that criteria is not actually unlawful. No, I don't. I don't think I said it was illegal. I think I said it was it was guided against by the Department of Education. Okay. Okay. Well. Okay. Thanks, Chair. Okay. Thanks. Agenda. Okay, Chair, members. Chair. Yeah, Robbie. Chair, just yeah, just before you move on, um, given, uh, and this is slightly, uh, and forgive me if you just bring this to the after, but just when we're on the, the, the subject, obviously we've got uh, next year's cohort of P, uh, P7s obviously facing into the same potential issues. Um, one of the options that was on the table from last year was to try and encourage primary schools uh, to bring the test uh, back into primary. And, and what we discovered last year was um, there's a... Uh, a reluctance within the educational sector, never mind from the Department of REA. But given what we've learned this year, perhaps is it something that we might, as a committee, explore just further options of what can be done to try and prevent what's happened this year from happening next year? Yeah, um, I mean, that, that would, I imagine that would look like a similar level of engagement necessary, Robbie, as, as you know yourself, um, given that the system works on the basis of, uh, unless the Department of Education or a Minister of Education um, decided otherwise, works on the basis of individual boards of governors setting admissions criteria, where in, in that instance we're required to engage with effectively all schools um, in relation to admissions criteria. So uh, uh, as you know yourself, haven't tried to do it yourself, to be fair to you, it, it's quite yeah. difficult to do. but. Um, obviously, this education committee should be concerned and interested in what approach is going to be, be taken to a place the 100 pupils that remain unplaced this year, and and also, as you say, what process is going to be used next year, uh, and if yeah, there, think, there are any yeah. mitigations I, being, done. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing of mitigation. Sorry, Robbie, really quickly, I'm, I'm hearing yeah, of mitigations. I'm hearing of mitigations publicly, but the AQE and PPTC have not seen fit to present those to the education committee to date yeah that has that has been a problem chair i'm just i'm, I'm minded too that um 
you know, uh, I think it's, it's circa 14,000 pupils um, annually enter into, in good faith, into these tests and stuff, and not enough was done, uh, uh, I think, to try and facilitate that. And what we've learned this, this year, there are other options on there. So I appreciate if we can have this maybe discussion again and maybe reach out to the primary schools um, in, in, in the interim to see if they would be happier to facilitate these tests, uh, perhaps, you know, if, if COVID is still an issue come uh, October, November. Okay. Okay. Any other members wish to comment? No. Okay, then we'll move on, members. Agenda item 2.3 uh, is uh, moving on to today's business uh, in terms of platforming uh, the responses that we've received to our, our youth engagement and our art uh, project, uh, asking young people to um, forward their uh, representations of their experience of life and learning uh, during the pandemic and particularly during lockdown. Um, can I introduce uh, our, our first uh, response that we've received, which is uh, a song and video uh, by the artist Ed Reynolds. Yes, Claire? Yeah, from uh, Wheelworks Art, which we'll now play to open our committee session on our youth engagement and art project. has just dropped everybody i'm really sorry that's okay it's okay yeah. is that does that mean public connection as well then yeah um it shouldn't actually but um, for the purposes of everyone seeing each other on the screens i have to rejoin now so okay do you want to try it again mark yeah Chair, in the absence of it working through uh, the, the the this this uh, technology today i think that you should sing <laughs> it was suggested earlier and I, I offered to volunteer you, Daniel. You can give Harry Harvey a good, uh, a good starting point today by going on a good note. I'm, I'm trying to retain uh, a public audience of the committee this morning, not drive them away. Oh, thanks, Chair. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, I think you'd be quite good, don't worry. <laughs> we'll go for it. Okay, so we're back. Everyone's in together again. Okay. You want to try again, Mark. Try the video one more time. Yeah. They work perfectly in the in the trial sure. run. Always does, <laughs> Show to your community. 
Should we move on? Unfortunately. Yeah, members, yeah. enjoy that in your own time. It was shot on the estate, as you can see, yeah, and it, um, features some artists who, you know, um, do really interesting stuff locally. So maybe we, if we can, at the very least, maybe we can post the video on the committee Twitter account um, after today. And if we think we, we've overcome some of the technological challenges before the end of the committee, the committee meeting, we can try and, and play it again. But um, we'll, we'll do our best to uh, platform that via the Assembly website, maybe, and our social media platforms, if that's appropriate. Um, I'd say a massive thank you to Ed Reynolds and everyone at Wheelworks Art um, for producing that song and video. And as I say, we'll do our, our best to platform that as best we can, if not uh, later again in the committee meeting today. Okay, yeah. Clark? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, I move to draft minutes at agenda item three. Can I refer members to the draft minutes of the committee meeting on 23rd of June at page seven of your meeting packs and seek members' agreement that the minutes are a complete and accurate record of proceedings? Agreed? Agreed, members? Agreed. Thank you. Okay, there are no matters arising. And that takes us to agenda item five, which is our oral briefing from the Northern Ireland Assembly Engagement Office on our youth engagement project to date. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove members from the spotlight and to add witnesses? Can I refer members to tabled papers, including a presentation and briefing note by the Assembly Engagement and Education Services and an Education Committee Clerk's Brief on this item. My Life and Learning in Lockdown presentation at page 17. Life and Learning in Lockdown Mentimeter Boards from the committee event at page 45. A note of uh, My Life uh, Learning in Lockdown event with young uh, asylum seekers and refugees at page 110. And a school focus groups table at page 118. Can I welcome then Louise Close, the Outreach Manager with Assembly Engagement, and Marina McConville, the Education Officer at Northern Ireland Assembly Education Service. Can I advise officials that the committee will uh, be glad to give you up to 10 minutes to make your opening statement, and then we'll take some questions from members. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Chair. Um, so I'll, I'll just start with a bit of background to the project. Uh, as you're aware, the Committee for Education had received correspondence on a number of written reports and surveys with respect to the adverse impact of lockdown and school restarts on the emotional well-being of young people and children. Um, in April, the committee approached the Engagement and Education Service to develop a series of projects to understand this issue better by hearing directly from young people. Uh, there were three projects were developed. Um, which the, the chair has, has mentioned there, which targeted a range of um, age groups and, and backgrounds. 
The first project saw the engagement service deliver two stakeholder events for over six teams um, online, which provided um, them an opportunity to share their views on the impact of lockdown, school closures and restarts, and, um, and the impact it had on their learning and emotional well-being and mental health. Um, the first of the, those two events, um, anybody over 16 was able to register um, and the event was promoted by youth organisations and um, by a digital campaign on the Assembly's social media platforms. And we think this is one of the first kind of open events we, we've done um, like that before for a committee. The second event took place um, for young refugees and asylum seekers and that was in partnership with the Red Cross, Bernardo's and Extern. The second project um, was led by the Education Service and they held school-based online focus groups, um, which invited a number of schools to participate in focus groups and activity on the topic. And Marina from the Education Service will um, give you a, a brief on, on that project in a moment. Final project, which I can see um, behind the, the chair, um, there is the, the My Life and Learning in Lockdown Arts project. Because we really passionately wanted to ensure that all young people could participate in this project and we understood that some would be, would be comfortable sharing in a focus group. Um, so this project allowed us, uh, allowed young people to submit ideas through a wide range of mediums including art, photography, poetry or a short story. Um, all of the projects were supported and promoted by the communications office um, who created and organised um, a row of ads um, on Facebook and Twitter to encourage sign-ups stakeholder event and the arts project and Sinead and the uh, communications office is preparing a report at the moment on the reach of that campaign um, and that will be uh, made available to the committee in due course. Uh, but firstly I'd just like to provide you with more detail on the stakeholder event. I'm just going to share my screen so hopefully this will work. Um, Uh, you have um, during these events we used um, a tool online tool called Mentimeter where the young people could anonymously put their views and thoughts um, onto a shared screen. Um, so I've just selected some of those um, thoughts which I'll, I'll talk about as we go through the presentation. Um, so the um, the first question was what was the most difficult thing about lockdown and what did you miss the most? Um, like all of us, I think uh, friends and family and meeting people in person, socialising and meeting new, new people as well was a common thread through all the groups. Um, a combination of uncertainty and lack of motivation left young people feeling like they were in limbo. Um, again, another trend that came across through all of the groups was that a lack of mental health support and support for school and peers. Um, homeschooling was hard and they felt they didn't get a lot of guidance from school and participating in on Zoom was difficult or, or Google Classrooms. Um, particularly with the refugees and asylum seekers, this was particularly difficult um, because learning um, online with no English um, um, meant they didn't understand the online classes and they didn't feel they had enough language support through interpreters. Um, Sport and extracurricular activities were something they all missed and the structured week, um, the, the, a lot again the groups said about days and weeks just merged into one. Um, not, having, not having enough devices at home or printers um, made it stressful and made it difficult for them to submit work in time. And then um, whenever they did get back to school it all happened very suddenly and a number of them mentioned the fact that they went immediately into um, exams which was incredibly stressful.
And um, again, in most scripts, they talked about never-ending and moving goalposts. So they, it was that, that uncertainty continuously about what was happening. Um, those in this refugee and asylum seeker event also mentioned that um, some of them actually got no education whenever they arrived because they arrived in um, December 2020 and weren't able to get a school place or college place. And for them as well, it was incredibly difficult because they couldn't familiarise themselves with Belfast or meet new friends. Um, but we asked them then, were there any benefits? And um, on the plus side, many felt that lockdown provided an opportunity to slow down, reflect, and um, realise that they may have been taking some things for granted. Um, some young people said they felt more confident um, and that they had room to grow in lockdown and time to improve themselves and their own mental health. Um, and there was some stability that um, came from less exposure of the influence of others. Um, there was one young man in, in the group I was in who had autism who actually felt that virtual learning um, provided equality uh, because he felt that he was an equal standing with um, more confident young people. Um, they felt the experience, some felt the experience had changed them for the better. They chose which friends to keep in contact with and were able to step back. And some young people found hobbies. And again, in my group, there was some young people who had taken up IT and woodwork and things that they would actually want to take forward in their, their future careers. Um, and it made space for activ activism, um, for, for example, getting involved in Black Lives Matter. Um, another thing that they, again, came across in all groups, um, the availability to have more sleep, they didn't have it, and being able to work at their own pace as well. Um, so then we asked them how did their school or the government support their mental health during lockdown, if at all. Um, young people came out heavily in favour of their family, friends and youth organisations um, were the ones uh, giving them the, the emotional support, but really did feel that schools and the government were less helpful. Um, for example, Voidpick, Rainbow Project, um, Red Cross and... Um, uh, the Belfast Metropolitan College were all commended by several young people. Um, MLAs were praised too for their work in their local areas. Um, a number of young people mentioned that MLAs had handed out hampers in their local areas. They did say there was a real lack of information from schools and government. Um, the support varied greatly, um, many saying there was little or none at all. And if there were initiatives, they felt they were tokenistic. So things like having a, a thought for the day or being sent YouTube videos or pamphlets. Um, school assemblies might promote a message, don't be depressed, but the young people didn't find this helpful and, and would have liked to have co-created a message uh, that was more relevant to pupils. Um, a lot of the young people agreed that they asked for help, but found that adults tried to um, invalidate it and, and didn't ask quick, uh, act quickly enough or didn't see the, the, or the issue as important. Um, some did say that although there was systematic, there wasn't systematic mental health support. That some individual teachers were good and had regular mental health checks, just asking them how they were doing or, or having a class that wasn't just about work. Um, some young people did praise their skills um, and said they were very good in keeping in contact with um, students. And uh, one school organised a couple of mental, actually mental health sessions and. Um, Others created mental health and wellbeing ambassadors within their school councils. A student from Queen's University said they had access to six counselling sessions if they needed them. Um, a common thread throughout all the rooms was the lack of access to counsellors. Um, and that 
that came from um, knowledge of a lack of funding to also just being unable to not having the knowledge of knowing how to access the service. The uh, Education Authority Stay Connect was praised and um, the big uptake was noted. However, young people did say that not all young people were aware of it and there could have been more promotion. In terms of learning, there seemed to be real frustration due to the lack of consistency between schools. One young person was taking A-levels and never had a live online session during the whole of lockdown. And he felt that it was incredibly isolating and uh, expected uh, it to change the second lockdown, but that wasn't the case. Um, another sixth form student um, said there was a huge amount of work expected of them in the second lockdown with deadlines that were undoable and there was no counselling provided. Um, again, planning came out as an issue in that um, the return to school was there was a huge emphasis on the academic side of things and they felt there should be more of a leeway when it came to assessment. Um, then we asked three additional questions and you'll have seen in the Mentimeter boards there was a lot of information here so um, just for, for timing I've, I've condensed these questions down into um, eight key points that um, the young people have raised, so key outcomes that they'd like to see. So um, we asked them if there is anything that could be done in the future um, and uh, the first area that was mentioned across all the groups was um, increasing access to counselling and mental health support. Um, things that were mentioned was making it easier for young people, um, providing confidential support for people who want to access it without having to go through a teacher or guardian. Um, particularly with Boypick, there was a young lady um, who mentioned that you know, sometimes they try to get access themselves um, with mental health issues, but a trusted adult was always required to get a referral and not all young people have someone like that in their lives. Um, make mental health professionals more accessible. So they'd suggested maybe having a website or being able to um, send text messages. And it was the reference a mental health website with the chat function, which most of the young people said they would be in favor of. They also suggest that schools could organize counseling sessions with students and teachers discuss ways to support mental health and lockdown um, and have more mental health days in school um, so rather than just every class being about work um, they also recommend a designated teacher to oversee mental health in schools and more advertising support for the services the second um, outcome was around flexible schooling and I, I thought this was really interesting coming from um, a working person who's very interested in, in flexible working um, a number of young people said, you know, if, if uh, people who are working are looking at flexible schooling, why can't we be looking or working? Why can't we be looking at flexible schooling? So um, they said, why is this not a time that, um, that that teachers could be looking at how work patterns are in the school and, and it's been the same for so so long? Could they look at hybrid schooling? Could they change the school timetable to allow young people to start later? shorter, more frequent breaks and um, more time to do extracurricular activities that um, that they are perhaps more passionate about rather than just looking at the academics. The third outcome was around the rights to private life. Again, something um, which I find interesting as somebody who's in work, this, the fact that um, we're you know looking at you know, being contacted all the time. This was actually raised with the young people as well. There was one young person who said her Google Classrooms app binged at three o'clock in the morning. 
And there was a very simple solution. A young person suggested that the apps could be set up so that the alerts don't come to their phones between certain times, um, because a number of them said it was very stressful whenever they were getting alerts in the evenings after school hours. The fourth um, outcome was um, around learnings and learning exams. They all said that it would be good to ease back um, and, um, and to, to work again rather than going straight in at the deep end. Um, postpone exams, um, some said where well, others felt they should go ahead but with reduced content. Um, a reflection of a young person who developed new IT and work work skills, as I mentioned earlier, was that there should be less pressure on academic success and, and work with students more at um, what they're good or passionate about. Um, provide more funding to increase the quality of teaching for those um, with loss of learning. Online facilitation training for teachers was something that came out as well, that there's a real variety of um, skill level with their teachers and how to engage young people virtually. Um, language support to understand classes, again, from the uh, refugees and asylum seekers, um, and additional intense um, English language courses to bridge the gap so they get easier access to Belfast Metropolitan College. Um, the fifth uh, outcome was around consistency. There was real frustration among the groups, so particularly whenever the young people who were from a, a wide range of different backgrounds and, and schools, they all were saying how different it was for each school. Um, and I think that was something that they said um, the committee should be looking at, is that there should be more consistency across schools for homeschooling and also equal access for equipment. The sixth point was around planning and consultation. All the young people, again, said that they would love to be involved in decision making in the future if there was another lockdown. Um, a member of the Nikki Youth panel said that young people had the right to be consulted by government regarding the decisions that are being made about exams, etc and the government should act in the best interest of young people. They should have a space to communicate with the executive about what the issues are and how to solve them. Um, and planning and making decisions quicker and making firm decisions was um, something that consistently was coming out as well. Um, and again, for refugees and asylum seekers was ensuring that language support was there um, as young people don't have English as their first language. Um, and then the seventh was around additional support. Um, uh, again, a, a number of young people said that the extra support should be given to young people in unique circumstances. We had um, young people from backgrounds who were maybe carers. We had um, there was a young person who worked part time in the NHS, um, and, and they had extra pressures rather than just focusing on the schoolwork. Um, being providing basic technology, Wi-Fi and digital um, connections need to be better, um, and um, a support for food banks as well was raised in a number of groups to avoid poverty leading to, to suicide from poor mental health. The final, um, the final point the young people um, wanted to, to make was a consideration of the impacts. Young people stated that there would be groups of young people who may have suffered more than the majority for reasons such as being in foster care, domestic abuse, death from families or, or lower incomes, and they should receive an increased amount of support. And I think just some of the quotes that are on the, the screen there are, are quite telling, you know, that just because they're doing well academically doesn't mean they're not struggling and um, I can feel that adults don't realise how much it affects them. So I think with everything that... Um, the, the committee or the department does. It's just realising that young people have gone through this and um, haven't really had much control over what has happened and that decisions um, going forward should really 
consider them at the forefront. So that was the, the, the stakeholder events. Um, and I'll pass to, to Marina now to talk about the, the schools project. Thank you, Louise, and thank you um, to Eving, and thank you, Chair, and hello to all members of the committee. Um, so I, I know you received quite a quite a detailed uh, paper on this, and uh, there was uh, it was quite a in the end up we had uh, quite a big project, and um, we wanted to um, hold school focus groups. We wanted to. Um, ensure that we covered all the school sectors, uh, which we did. We wanted to um, have schools from as many constituencies as possible, uh, which we were able to achieve 14 out of 18 constituencies. We had a few couple of schools, maybe from uh, one constituency, more than one school. And really that was determined by um, invitations went out um, via C2K. A via our contact list and also assembly comms, which I, I believe you um, may already be aware of, a, the, the comms um, plan. A, so a, we advertise widely and it's a very, obviously a, a difficult year and a difficult time of the year for schools. Um, so we feel that we got a very good response, everyone, and we really touched base with about 300 people, young people. Um, and we did focus groups um, with uh, 19 schools. So uh, I think we did 21 focus groups with 19 schools. We also were contacted with the um, contacted by NAACN, which is the Newton Abbey, a, it's the Newton Abbey Art and just find here. Just bear with me, everyone, and Community Network. And uh, they wanted to do a focus group, and they also wanted to highlight that their young people, they also have a, a, you know, a part of their, one of their projects is studios, and they make music, and um, it's uh, very popular among their membership. And they also have produced songs. I know we, we had a, a little clip from a song at the start of uh, the, the meeting, um, and I have actually put the links to those songs uh, on the document. And uh, you can uh, also find them if you if you look at you know the NACN and Cool Studios up. Uh, we will hope to play them perhaps at a meeting uh, in the future. Um, so uh, one was to the tune of Let It Be. One was to the tune of Do They Know It's Christmas, and the lyrics then. And we have another one as well. And the lyrics were written by. Uh, Brooke Thompson and Carly Richardson for two solo songs, and then the Do, Do They Know It's Christmas cover was actually uh, by the whole group. And um, we were also contacted by Bambridge High School. They're, connect they're involved in a Connecting Minds project um, with St. Patrick's and Newbridge uh, schools, and they wanted to tell the committee about that. Uh, they felt that they feel that has been uh, very important uh, in helping those that have been involved and they would like to see something like that rolled out um, across uh, more schools in Northern Ireland and I know that Louise has been talking about uh, young people needing more support in terms of, of mental health and we were also contacted by a youth pact this is a project it's a cooperation Ireland and the National Youth Council uh, of Ireland and they also looked at you know the impact on um, the impact on young people of COVID and uh, came up with uh, some conclusions, which if I, 
they're on the document and uh, I'll maybe mention them at the end. So just going to um, the focus groups or the, and the questions, everyone. Just bear with me. So, um, you know, the, the first question was, what was the best uh, activity to help you cope? Um, the, gr the groups were from primary, from P4, up until, uh, you know, post 16 year olds, basically in year 13. And then in our youth group as well, we had um, a couple of um, post 16s too. So family and friends, obviously at the top of the list, uh, and Louise has already uh, mentioned that, but very much so as well for primary. Um, video chatting, the new normal was uh, one phrase which was used. And the importance of, um, you know, having their devices and streaming services and entertainment, um, playing with siblings, uh, as well. So family very much so uh, at the top with friends and for older people, friends really important too. Um, exercise and being outdoors was, was another big one. Um, and some of the primary school uh, children said, you know, they hated being stuck indoors. Um, so people were appreciative of having a garden, for example, a lot of young people and being able to play, uh, play with their siblings. Uh, out walking, uh, which was a new activity for a lot of young people, and walking with family, taking the dog for a walk, you know, and walking in their local area. So, you know, we had uh, our youth group members mentioning Cave Hill, for example, and we had, uh, you know, Clifton and Bangor talking about Clandyboy Estate. So, you know, people getting to walk in their local areas. Sport as well. Now, obviously, no team sports or anything like that, but practicing sports. Uh, and keeping fit was uh, very important and a lot of clubs would have you know provided uh, programs uh, and kept in, in touch with um, their young people and, and for year 13 strength and conditioning programs and things like that uh, so that was very important um, so let's have a look and also a lot of the a lot of the clubs um, really got their young people involved in doing the activities in the community so a uh, you know um, Pool Studios and NACN, <clears throat> you know, they were uh, singing. They were actually singing a, a, in a street and, you know, really, I suppose, to support older people who were, you know, living on their own and, and people were kind of locked down. So um, that was good. And uh, we also had a, another school uh, you know, where the GAA club and the Holy Cross in, um, Holy Cross in a, Town and uh, you know they were they were the G the GAA club and the parish was also um, you know doing shopping for people in the local community too. Um, so online gaming was another activity where, where a lot of young people uh, felt uh, it helped them basically to deal with lockdown. The word stress reliever was used. Um, a couple of people admitted that they played it too much and that it was sometimes the cause of arguments. Um, you know, board games as well uh, were played in, in, in families and that sort of thing. Art, quite a few people um, did art at primary level um, and learned new skills like cooking and baking. And we're delighted to have, you know, parents at home maybe with a little more time to actually do that kind of thing. Uh, one primary school pupil helped his uh, grandfather in the garden. Uh, listening to music, you know, across the age group really was very important as well. In terms of question two, everyone moving on, what uh, did um, our focus groups, what did the young people miss the most? Well, face-to-face -face social interaction, um, primary school pupils saying like being social, um, grandparents of course were very much missed 
cousins, extended family and friends. So friends and family again there. Um, and primary pupils missed playing with their friends and going to visit their houses and going to the park and that sort of thing. Um, also, um, quite a lot of people mentioned missing out on important events because of lockdown, you know, birthday parties, um, P7 lever events, and also lever events for, um, you know, exam classes at secondary level, you know, religious events like First Communion and Confirmation, um, school trips as well. And, uh, you know, in P7, you have an enjoyable period, I suppose, after many do the transfer where they you know, can relax and have school trips and, um, you know, P7, you kind of learn leadership skills, you have more responsibilities in the school. And that applies also to, you know, year, um, the older years at secondary level who, you know, are senior prefects or head boy, head girl, and all of those things are affected. Um, so feeling that they miss, uh, missed out, um, you know, older pupils again, missing out on learning to drive, perhaps uh, to so uh, kind of missing out was was um were all of those things sport was also very big missing their sport missing football um football and gaelic mentioned uh, mostly but also we had you know rugby and um we had you know tennis golf competitions uh, horse shows um hurley um so all sorts of activities activities there uh, very much uh, missed um, in terms of what people are looking forward to getting back to, getting back out on the pitch and getting back to team sports, everyone. Um, going places, just being able to go out and go somewhere really, you know, uh, things being open for primary, very much, you know, indoor play areas, play parks. Um, and a lot of young people missed going to things like going to the Balmoral Show uh, for those, uh, I, I suppose, uh, from the, you know, the, the rural areas. Um, also, um, going to the swimming pool, friends' houses, going to farmers' markets, again, from our, our rural communities. Uh, so, you know, missed, missed going to, to lots of places and events. Um, they also... Um, miss their clubs so they miss their clubs they're you know meeting up with their you know youth clubs uh, but uh, youth clubs were very good at um really connecting online uh, and that was certainly the case for the youth club um that that we were talking to nacn um so you know then you had the girls brigade the boys brigade uh you had the you know football clubs soccer uh, and uh, gaelic as well so very very important that connection uh, but certainly that, that proper interaction with clubs was very much missed. A, a lot of young people, and, and we had a lot of primary young people in, in our focus groups, missed school and missed their teachers, primary especially, you know, missed having that help. A, not everyone a, had help at home. Um, I'll maybe say a little bit more about that later on. And then a, shopping was also missed. And that really was across the board. Um, so a... Moving on to question three, if that's okay, everyone. And that was what were you uh, thankful for during lockdown? And very much um, primary and secondary pupils were thankful for their family, uh, for their friends, those that had siblings, you know, and were able to play with them at primary level. Um, some mentioned being very thankful that they were able to see more of, you know, their parents, spend more time with family parents working from home, able to help them and do other activities. 
like going outside with family for walks and walking the dog. Um, we also had thank young people thanking NHS uh, the, uh, and key workers, uh, not only key workers in the NHS, but also um, our Banbridge High, our representative uh, there, Sarah McMahon, she was saying that really their group, um, they really felt a newfound appreciation um, for key workers um, in the NHS and also for those that, you know, that work in shops and, and generally. So um, a lot of young people were thankful for extra relaxation time during the day. They've been able to set their own pace in terms of schoolwork um, and, you know, finish it later in the day if the weather was good. Um, Many were thankful for living uh, in the countryside on a farm, having a, a big garden, being to help, being able to help out on the farm. Um, you know, one one primary school pupil said he he he, he lambed all the ewes um, on his farm. So um, you know that was obviously a very exciting, and also thankful for schools and teachers. So um, you know the groups that we dealt with were very thankful for um, teachers and for their pupils, for the contact, for explaining work. You know, primary schools got a lot of fun activities sent home, held special assemblies. They might have had a forest day or an art day. Online meetings were very important, video chatting with friends, having devices. Um, they were thankful for the little things in life um, as well. Um, primary, uh, really saying they were glad and happy to be back at school. Um, school for key workers. Some of the young people were in school the whole time because they were children of key workers and they were very glad of that. Uh, one pupil said they were thankful for the basis, the basics in life and, you know, basically having a home and food and, and all of that sort of thing. In terms of the most difficult thing, uh, not seeing extended family, not seeing uh, friends, uh, worrying this question for everyone, uh, what was the most difficult thing about lockdown? Uh, worrying about COVID-19, uh, some had to cope with bereavement uh, during the lockdown period uh, of grandparents and with one young person had to cope with a, um, you know, a cancer diagnosis um, for parents. So uh, some had you know, particularly uh, difficult times, everyone. Um, difficult with staying inside, I've already mentioned that. Uh, missing sport, not being able to go out and go go to places, go to restaurants, go on holiday, etc. Um, and the Banbridge group, uh, the the Connecting Minds project, um, they did a little survey and found that 22% of the about 50 young people in in the group experienced anxiety um, during lockdown, and also, oh sorry, 22% uh, experienced states of sadness during lockdown and 19% experienced anxiety. Um, they were grateful for, or one of the hardest things was schoolwork, getting it all done. You know, some people liked free time, others got a bit lost because of a lack of routine. There was a lot of pressure towards the end of the lockdown on exam classes. Um, so that was very, very difficult. Uh, some primary school children found it a bit hard to understand the work and, you know, didn't have teacher, the teacher there to help them. 
um, a lot of young people worry about uh, or think it's very hard that they may have missed a lot of work and that might be important later on. Louise has already mentioned year 13, everyone, um, and they definitely feel like, you know, are they going to become the COVID year? They don't want to be. They haven't done their GCSEs. They haven't done their ASs. Um, they were told there were going to be no exams. Then uh, they were told there would be assessments, but uh, some of them said that schools treated them like exams. They felt under very high pressure. Um, one teacher said that uh, a union rep said he's never seen teachers under so much pressure around all of all of this needing to determine grades for pupils. Um, some older pupils felt COVID messaging, the timing of it, um, you know, was say, uh, you know, could could have been better. Obviously, you know, uh, a lot of them felt a little bit you know, misled and cheated because now having done all that work, their ASs will not count towards their final A-level mark. So they feel they worked really hard, but you know, what was the point? Um, and uh, one, one year 13 said people were struggling with work and schools and schools didn't seem to understand that. Um, other schools did adapt actually, you know, there were schools and actually mostly people were grateful to their schools and felt that, you know, their teachers and their subject teachers and the schools had tried, um, you know, to support them during lockdown. Uh, but some schools uh, on our, uh, in our group did adapt their, did adapt their testing approaches, um, you know, didn't have end of term exams, that kind of thing and you know wanted to allow pupils really to ease back into into school life um, a lot of pupils were saying i love being back at school especially primary one thing that was difficult our irish median school in lurgan a uh, neve um Nepruntius, a it was um or bun school neve Pruntius, excuse me um, one girl, or one young P6 said that my parents didn't have Irish and that was difficult. Um, also, uh, not being able to play or watch sport, the repetitive nature of every day was, was a problem for a lot of young people, the boredom. Uh, sometimes relationships with siblings were a bit difficult and missing their youth clubs as well. And they're most looking forward to seeing fr friends and family, going, to, going out, enjoying life, things returning to normal, having a proper sixth form experience, a proper year eight experience, and a proper P7 experience in the future. I will say that in terms of what was difficult, transfer was very difficult for P7s, for those classes that were doing the transfer. You know, it was on and then they were told it was, it was canceled. They had worked very hard for that. Um, and uh, many were disappointed that they didn't get to do it so and we're very worried really about whether they were going to get into the school of their choice and again you've been discussing that already at today's meeting in terms of what government and, and school it could do most want the restrictions to end although a few do want to be kept safe no matter what and still maybe uh, wear their masks and it, possibly uh, because they're they're vulnerable uh, more funding for schools more funding for youth groups the our youth group um NACN, you know, they have premises which don't have basic amenities. They have a new building, but they, they need money to, um, you know, to do that up. And uh, one thing I will say is I get the impression that, you know, clubs and youth clubs were really important. And I think this came across in the Zoom call as well. Um, and that, you know, there is a call uh, for more funding for the, you know, for youth clubs 
and uh, certainly that's a, a plug for NACN and and you know getting funding hopefully from government for a building with toilets, running water, and uh, heating would would be nice. Um, one pupil said, "Give me a laptop uh, to the government." Uh, others say, um, "You know, government." Other young people were thinking of others, saying that. Um, you know, uh, the government should continue to help people with the bills. And one of our uh, pupils from, um, you know, our pupils from Clifton and, and Torbank, our two special schools, you know, were concerned about people and the impact that uh, COVID has had on people and that the government uh, need to help them. Um, online schooling, if there's going to be any future lockdowns, it's the way forward, really. A uh, live, um, live action, uh, really is uh, what the pupils want. Less homework in primary school. Uh, many say they still need to um, catch up and would like some more revision, etc. Um, Banbridge, Banbridge High and the schools in Banbridge want the government to, you know, take, you know, to do mindfulness really across schools in Northern Ireland. You know, they had a lot of uh, Banbridge High had year 12 having panic attacks, and mindfulness was helpful there. Um, and also say, saying to the government, trust teachers to determine grades in the future, everyone. And I'm going to have to leave it there. Okay, everyone, sorry about that. I know I've gone over time and I, there is more detail. Um, there is more detail in the in the document. So uh, thank you. I'll hand over to Louise. Thank Great. You. I'll, I'll just very briefly um, run through the, the final project was the um, arts project, which is, uh, I mentioned, you'll be able to see behind the, the chair and um, all the lovely artwork we received. Um, so the, the arts project was an opportunity for young people to showcase um, through the arts how they felt about lockdown and, and school closures and restarts. And as I said at the start, we really wanted to hear from all young people. So giving young people different ways of, of communicating with the committee. And I think it, I think that my favourite piece is the arts project and because I really think you can see um, the the variety and high you know that not not it was it was very difficult but there's also some lovely things that came out of um, the art as well too so we had 72 submissions um, from young people aged from six to 18 from all across Northern Ireland um, so there, we split them into a, a couple of different areas so poetry and prose so we got those for some some. St. Pat's and Dungannon Heart Primary School and uh, the NYCI Corporation Ireland Youth Pack. So we had some really lovely poetry um, which really did express um, the fear and frustration and boredom and anxiety the young people felt during lockdown. But also um, some of it showed, you know, that the thanks that um, that young people had to their, you know, people like their youth workers, as Marina mentioned before, but um, how um, supportive and, and thoughtful and reliable they, they were um, it, during the pandemic. And I, I hope you get the time to, to read some of the poetry because it was um, really insightful um, uh, from the young people. Uh, we even had one uh, one piece of poetry from, it was a piece, sorry, a pro that was from the perspective of their dog and how confusing it was for them. So just showing how it impacts on their, it impacted on everybody in their household. Um, we then had a series of uh, photographs in St Mary's um, Grammar in, in uh, Derry, Londonderry, and um, the you can see there, you know, the images are, are very much about you know that, that loneliness, that isolation, and the impact that masks have had on our, our lives. 
And then we have had a whole range of art um, from a range of different schools. And it really showcased you know, how difficult lockdown was for, for young people. Um, the the constraints it had on their lives um, and um, you know, the impact it had on on their family lives, but also um, in terms of you know things like learning to ride their bike, having the opportunity to bake, having the opportunity to paint, spend time with family, um, seeing their dog every day, um, uh, going for walks on the beach. So you know, although there was a lot of lockdown was difficult, um, I think for young people that time with their family. Um, that time to do things that they love to do um, was a real positive. And I, I think um, I'd like to, to end on that note as well, too, that uh, and uh, we can now uh, take any questions um, that you might have on any of the projects. So thank you very much. Louise, Maria, thank you so much indeed for uh, going through what's been a, a fantastic uh, piece of work. Um, I realise there's a wide range of, of issues that have been raised and, and it's almost impossible not to take up the time that we needed to get through it. Um, massive thanks to the Assembly Engagement Service and the Assembly um, Education Service as well. We, the Education Committee obviously sought to engage with young people on a wide range of issues and, and we were particularly uh, inspired by Professor Lundy at Queen's University's model of youth engagement, which puts uh, giving young people space, voice, audience and influence at the heart of, of youth engagement. And I, I want to say a huge thank you to all the young people um, who have engaged with the committee and participated in various aspects of this project, particularly, as you say, Louise, the, the art project that just demonstrated the creativity of our, our young people in, in Northern Ireland. Um, we, hopefully, people will agree that we have given young people space, that we've given them voice, we've given them audience. And the key thing now is that we make sure that we do give them influence as well. So I, I would remind members that the, the youth engagement work will be written up as a report over the summer and hopefully it will be presented to the Assembly uh, on the basis of a, a motion to the House. Um, do, I realise we've covered a wide range of issues, but if any members would like to comment or ask a question um, of Louise or Marina, perhaps if you use the hand raise function um, on Starleaf, and I'll, I'll uh, take you that way. Um, every member might not need to, to speak at this occasion, but. If you wish to, use the hand raise function and I'll, I'll, I'll bring you in. So, uh, can I bring in uh, Diane Dodds, MLA? Thank you very much, um, Chris, and thank you, Marina and uh, Louise, for the presentation. I listened to this with interest. And really, my question to you is, as you write up this report, what are the main things that you think we can learn from this? And what can we do to make things better? Um, if, if you were saying to me, I mean, I've, I've listened really, really carefully to what you have to say. Um, I completely agree that even in my own family experience, the experience of children across schools um, and their interaction with either the schools or teachers is very variable. So, um, if, and, and I'm not, I'm not making a criticism. I'm just saying that is the way it was for whatever the reasons, and. It, I mean, all of us 
um, were struggling to deal um, with the situation we find ourselves in. But that, that is very variable. If you're saying to me, I mean, I'm taking from this, one of the things that we would like to see is greater consistency mm. in how, how things are approached. We would like to see an investment in teacher skills for online um, teaching, because yeah. we may well um, use these models. This, these are not things that we are going to discard and throw in the bin and never ever use again. But you know, we may well use these models, even if they're not a, our main source of teaching, they may well be an addition to teaching um, in the classroom in the future. Um, I, I think um, I would also um, give as my take from this is that as well as developing the skills of teachers, we need to develop the skills of pupils. So one of the things that I am really quite passionate about is creating a digital spine for Northern Ireland so that children from a very, very young age learn the skills that they need to live in a world which is ever more um, technology driven. Um, and I, I, if you were saying to me, what, what are my takes from that? That was my takes as well as, as the, the fundamental, just amazing um, capacity of young people to um, deal with the circumstances they find themselves in and our ability to maybe um, help and ease their path by providing more support. And so... I mean, those are my takes from, from this morning, but I really want to know what your takes, if you're writing this up as a report, what are the things that really, really uh, stand out to you? Um, and Marina, I too have been to Cool Studios in Newton Abbey. They're an amazing bunch of young people. They're really challenging. <laughs> Make no mistake about that. As a politician, when you go to see them, they're really, really challenging. I'd really like to see this committee really highlight because I think art... Um, and the, the, the medium that, that they are expressing themselves through is really important for young people. And I also really love to see us getting a little, finding a way through for them for, for, for funding for that new extension, which would greatly, greatly improve um, their ability to work with young people. Thank, thanks, Diane. And Louise and Marina, sorry to have to ask you to be as brief as possible, but I need to keep <laughs> us moving today. Yeah. Thanks. No Thank problem. You. Um, yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think for me, the things that stood out were around um, the c consistency was certainly um, something that was mentioned across all the groups. And I think the young people, whenever, particularly whenever they were in the, the focus groups, you know, it highlighted the fact that the skills had different um, different levels of um, homeschooling and that some had virtual, some didn't, some had printed paper, some did. So that lack of consistency, I think, was a real issue and something that, it should be should be looked at if there's another lockdown. But as you also say, there is the young people, and I suppose I suppose I, as I said in the presentation, as a worker, I am interested in flexible working. I am interested in the right to the private life, as are young people. And I think that's something that um, the committee could look at is um, you know the hybrid style of schooling. Is that something that's even possible? Um, you know, ensuring that. If, if there is another lockdown or if there is um, communication with young people that it's within the school hours. Um, so that was another area. And then the access to counselling, um, that was something that came consistently. It was about 
about knowing how to access counselling and the funding were the two the two main issues. Um, and then the final thing I think again was mentioned in all of them was that access to um, the executive and to political leaders to, to be able to talk during the process, not just be told at the end. Um, so whenever <coughs> politicians, excuse me, <coughs> are coming up with decisions that they, they talk to young people before they make them. And I think that was really the key things that came from my discussions, Marina. I don't know if you've anything else you want to add to that. Yes, I would agree. Um, thank you very much for your question, Diane. And uh, I think teacher training as far as, you know, um, online uh, facilitation, etc., I think mm -hmm. is very, very important uh, that all young people do have a device as well, um, uh, which is all, uh, the digital spine idea is a great idea. Um, also, um, a, a primary or primary schooler lady in St. Macu's in um, Derry News, uh, the principal there, Gary Farrell, talked about the Engage programme and how important that was. That's money by um, you know the Department for Education for teachers to go in and do catch up learning. And uh, he was saying he got five thousand pounds to do that, but he was also uh, eligible for up to fifteen thousand pounds for summer schemes. And they're doing one week of a summer scheme, but you get £5,000 a week. But he, he would like to see a bit more flexibility that he could have actually used, you know, applied for that money, but maybe used it for a classroom assistant or for further, you know, engagement with pupils that need help uh, catching up. He also mentioned the special educational needs uh, process that it's taking up to and beyond a year um, for young people to be assessed. And that has been slow. It has been slowed down by the pandemic, of course. And you know he's con very very concerned about that. Uh, primary pupils want more outdoor activities. Mm -hmm. They want to spend more time outdoors when they're at school. Um, when they talked about, uh, they want more outdoor activities provided in Northern Ireland: skate parks, a uh, dog, a uh, dog parks. Um, what was the other one? Skate park, cycle paths. Um, so they want more uh, places to go, really. Um, outside and uh, uh, that's that was something I certainly uh, took the importance of youth groups of, of mm -hmm. the sports clubs that kept in touch with all their programs NACN how important that was having their weekly meeting as normal but online um, and lots of youth uh, organizations uh, in the zoom club in the zoom uh, event we had there was such appreciation for a, a youth organization in Armagh and a youth worker there for really, you know, really supporting young people. Um, so I do think that, um, you know, youth provision and those kind of more fun activities, artistic activities, it can't all be about the, the academics and just, um, you know, exams and all of that sort of thing. So okay. uh, that's, that's it. I mean, there was a little bit of isolation, you know, an only child who had no one to talk to. I felt lonely and I was a little bit concerned because in, um, you know, what could the school or government do? Some young people said nothing, you know, and, and, and that they, they weren't looking forward to anything really. And what was good about lockdown? Nothing. So that was a very much the, the minority, but, you know, it's, it's hard, hard to read that or to hear that. Thank Thanks, you. Marina. Dan, I'm going to have to move us on. Thanks. Thanks for that question. Okay. Can I um, bring in Daniel McCrossan, MLA? I think Pat had to uh, leave. Apologies to Pat for not being able to get him in on that on the question there, as he as he had wished. Apologies, uh, Daniel McCrossan. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to both our guests today for the very detailed uh, presentation that provided. Obviously, a lot of work and uh, research and engagement has went on. 
uh, and we do appreciate your time for sharing that very important information uh, with us, particularly the experiences of so many young people throughout the pandemic. Um, it's interesting to look at the uh, stated benefits uh, of lockdown uh, time to myself. Uh, uh, appreciate what we have, more time with immediate family, time to dedicate uh, to skills and all sorts of others. Is there any group or organisation trying to analyse the positives that have come out of the very difficult times we have had uh, and been going through with a view to seeing how these can be used to help our young people in the future? And also, what is your take on the positives young people have identified? Do you have any plans to build them in any way going forward? Um, I think, uh, I'm, I'm not sure myself um, if there's any organisations doing any additional research into this, but the things that really struck me about the positives from lockdown for the young people, particularly around mental health and, and um, learning, were, was around the flexibility, the lack. A number of young people raised the fact that they're able to, to work to their own sleep patterns, um, which sometimes they feel adults um, dismiss, but um, one young people brought up, person brought up about the research that says, you know, teenagers work in a different sleep cycle. So um, they find that, that the positive was the flexible working um, within uh, the school pattern that, and they didn't have to get so early to commute to school um, as well. So that, that was one of the positives that really struck with me. Um, and, uh, and that equality of, of teaching, I thought, was interesting for the less confident young people as well, or, or those with that, that, the, young, the young man with autism as well. I thought that was an interesting take that actually there was some equality um, in, um, in the education and, and the fact that they, there was less influence from um, young people um, within the class on that. Um, but it would be interesting to see if somebody went and took a look at what the positives were and, and try to then um, you know, use the positives to, to move um, schooling forward for the young people. But I think, Marina, did you have any other thoughts apart from the, the kind of flexible schooling? Obviously, there's all the family and, and spending time with family piece, but I think in terms of lockdown, um, the kind of flexible schooling arrangements was something that really struck me. Um, uh, Louise, I would say that in the groups, in the school groups that I did, you know, across primary and secondary, uh, there wasn't real, in terms of requesting flexible schooling, um, maybe an early finish in primary was suggested by a few. One primary school, a uh, uh, you know, had finished at 2 p.m. every day, and everybody loved that, just easing, you know, back into a uh, school life. Uh, you know, longer break times, uh, lunch times again, wanting more time, you know, to play and and to socialise. They feel they've missed out on socialising, so um, that's really important uh, too. Um, so, and, and again, I've emphasised more outdoor activities generally. Um, I think the Education Authority might be doing a, a, a survey also of schools. I'm not sure if there's, a you know, what the questions are, but uh, I know some schools seem to be um, doing a, another another kind of a survey while they were speaking to ourselves. Okay. Um, um, just on that, the other the other thing I just wanted to quickly mention was about the lack of focus on academics and more focus on what young people are passionate about. Again, a number of people in my group had the time to take up hobbies that could actually lead to their future careers. Um, and I think that was something, again, that came through is instead of just focusing on, on the academics, that there could be more of a focus on um, passions and, and their lives uh, to, to build towards their future careers. Thank, and could I just that. say... 
Torbank School as well, that um, they were wanting more outdoor equipment and things like that. So again, that that emphasis on you know funding for you know for physical activity and outdoor uh, activities. Thanks. Okay, thanks for that, Daniel. Thanks for your question. I have time for one last question from Robin Newton before we move to the Department of Education's witnesses. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Okay, Robin, brief question, and then uh, Nicola for a brief question before we move on. Thanks. <laughs> Oh. Is Robin there? He is, yeah. Robin, are you mute, maybe? Sorry, Sarah. Sure, sure, I thought you were in charge of the muting, non muting. Sorry, I, I, I had, Chair, in, in my past experience, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, Louise and Marina, and, and we should be grateful because I've had also the opportunity to compare the educational service that we offer and the engagement service that we offer from other jurisdictions. Uh, and there's no doubt in my mind that we come out streets, streets ahead. And I think they have proven that today as well. I think yeah, I, I don't have a, a very detailed question. I have perhaps a suggestion to make sure that the committee might like to, to pick up on. I think the one thing that the report says to me or the information says to me is that the importance of school is much more than just education in itself and all the other add-ons that the school uh, carry out and the contacts at the school uh, contribute much more to the uh, rounding and development of the pupil than just the purely educational aspect. I do think, Chair, that the, the one thing that really hits me is the counselling and the mental health support. And I know that we have, uh, uh, over the period of this committee uh, and the pandemic, expressed our concerns about the, the, the counselling and men mental health, health support. And I think that was why, Chair, that we were very keen as a committee to push for the uh, additional support over the summer uh, periods uh, involving the uh, summer schemes, but involving more than just the school in, in, in the summer schemes. So in terms of, a, 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 in the writing up of the report, Chair, I think it should be primary in our thinking that indeed that the Minister of Education, to whom I uh, should get the report, obviously, but indeed because of the emphasis placed by the young people on the counselling and mental health, that the mental health, that the Minister of Health should also be included uh, within that and thought about as the report is being, being developed. And indeed also uh, the Minister for Communities, because we have, uh, as, a, as a committee, recognised the need for a, 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 a holistic uh, method of addressing these problems. But I do think, Chair, so, I mean, I would think, I would make that proposal, that, Chair, uh, through you, that, that that report goes to and includes the three uh, ministers. Can I just say, uh, the point raised, I think it was by, by Marina, about the summer scheme and a principal wanting to be more flexible. I was under the impression, Chair, that we were asking for a, very high degree of flexibility in how the summer scheme and the support might be used. So, uh, and my, my 
certainly my thinking at that time was that principals nearly should be able to use the money as best they thought uh, in terms of addressing the, the, the needs of the young people. Okay. Thanks, so Robin. I, I, think, I think they're useful proposals in terms of forwarding that report to um, all ministers mentioned, and perhaps we could take that individual issue with regards to the flexibility up in more detail with uh, with the the mentioned principle. Um, we're oh, we're out of time, so I'll I'll ask uh, Nicola and Harry uh, to make their brief comments and question, and then maybe give. Louise and Marina, 30 seconds to close. <laughs> uh, Nicola, thank you. Thanks, Chair. Um, I, I will be very brief. Um, Louise and Marina, thanks so much for your presentation. Um, really comprehensive and um, really informative. Um, I was actually able to participate in the youth engagement Zoom event with um, a range of different um, children and young people, and it was really insightful and it was brilliant that they were able to have their voices heard and I'm really glad that they were able to have their voices heard here this morning as well and we definitely have a lot to learn from them. Um, just one point that really struck me throughout your presentation this morning was a number of times it was mentioned about the benefits of the lockdown and what young people saw as the benefits and one was about their kind of living arrangements and the fact that they had nice gardens or um, were able to go out for walks and had like some you mentioned even living on the farm but that even though they uh, um, had those experiences, they were still mindful of those who were less fortunate and didn't have that. And even going as far as um, like remote learning and not having access to um, devices and that, that they were still mindful of that. That really um, actually struck a chord with me there that they, our young people are so kind of mindful of other people and those less fortunate. Um, so we definitely have a lot to learn from them. Um, and I'm looking forward to actually the, to reading the full report um, that'll be done over the summer through the committee. So thanks very much for your time this morning. That was great. Thank you. Thank you, Nicola. Harry Harvey. Emily. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you, Louise and Marina, and just a few points. Um, the primary few were, first of all, the children that I thought was good, um, were the most important thing, the kept safe, um, with a normal feel to it. I did like... Um, Longer breaks and lunches, less homework, fewer tests, more fun, PE, outdoors. I think maybe MLAs could take part in the research any that was my thinking. Um, as far as teachers go, IT facilities could be improved a lot. I know through it all anyone I know, some teachers actually adapted better to it than others as well. So there could be a wee bit done there. Um, over 16s would be something I'd be very interested in, alternative education, hobbies which could lead to work opportunities, etc. Um, that's about it. That'll do today. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you very much, Harry. Thanks to all uh, members for their contributions. Uh, Louise and Marina, thank you so much indeed for all the work that you've undertaken. Do you want 30 seconds to round up there, Louise? I'm okay. I think we'll just um, we'll work with the, the clerk to, to complete the report over the summer. And unless Marina has anything else to add, <laughs> I think that's us, Chair. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Oh, I think Marina might be on mute. Marina, you're on mute. No. Sorry, Chair. Uh, just thanks to all the focus groups and to our youth group, a uh, and to you know the Banbridge group and to a. Uh, you know all the young people as well that took part in the Zoom event. Thanks to them all for, you know, for getting involved.
Thanks, thanks so much uh, to both of you for all the work, and, and as you guys said, to all the, the young people that are involved. Uh, we look forward to reading the, the final report and to bringing that back to the Assembly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, can I ask the clerk to summarise any actions uh, before we move to our next briefing? Um, thanks, members. Um, the main issue is, I suppose, now what we'll do with all of this wonderful material that we've received. Um, the committee will have an opportunity to mine down um, the themes that have been raised in the youth engagements um, at all those different levels of focus group, um, Zoom and, and uh, artwork. Um, and the committee will get an opportunity then to make recommendations. And the process will be um, that I will draft a report and that will be circulated um, to you um, for discussion, um, deliberation and agreement. Um, we're hoping to um, launch that then in early September and formulate a, a motion around it so that uh, we can bring it to the, the Assembly in plenary. Um, so, I mean, another action just to take on board at this point is that um, although the Education Minister would be the, the central um, person to, to respond, um, the Ministers for Health and Communities um, should also receive the report just to reflect um, various cross-cutting aspects. Um, and then there was a point there that members wanted to address, which was to do with flexibility in the rollout of summer schemes um, and a particular issue raised by a principal um, during one of the focus groups. So um, if members are content, um, I'll prepare correspondence to the department about that one. Thank you, Clark. Members content with those actions? Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Chair, Thank can you. I just yeah, make one point a minute to make? Um, in the survey, there's always those that didn't reply or didn't give answers, so maybe be something to look into as well. You know. Sure. Okay. Any gaps? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, members, we'll move to agenda item six, which is our briefing from the Department of Education on youth engagement. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove all members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses and refer members to tabled items, a clerk's brief, and a briefing paper from the Department of Education at page 121. Can I welcome Paul Brush, Director of Youth and Early Years at the Department of Education, Paul Wright, Head of Children and Young People's Strategy Team at the Department of Education. Can I advise witnesses that the committee will give you no more than 10 minutes to make an opening statement, uh, followed by questions from the members. Thank you. Well, good morning, Chair, and thank you for the opportunity to come and brief the committee on the work that we're doing to um, enhance youth engagement. Um, and particularly a project known as Young People's Participation in Decision-Making Project. Um, and we hope to give you a flavour of the work we've done already on that and the next steps. Um, just to reiterate uh, again, I'm Paul Brush. My, per my responsibilities within the department are for early years um, uh, and the youth side of things. But I also have the Children Young People's Strategy and out of that flows this commitment um, to ensure that there is open, transparent, responsive engagement with children and young people, which explains why um, I'm leading on that particular piece of work. Paul Wright and the team here beside me is uh, the person uh, leading on, on a lot of the work in, involved in that project. Um, as I say, 
A lot of this emanates from the Children Young People strategy that has a commitment in it to facilitate um, involvement of children and young people in decisions that affect them. So that strategy, as you know, has been signed up to by all departments, by the executive. So coming out of that, there's a commitment uh, for us to look at, well, how could we make that a reality? How could we ensure across government that there is that coherent, consistent approach to engaging with young people and children in areas of policy or legislation that are going to affect them? And I suppose even sitting behind the strategy, there is the UNCRC, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, Article 12 commitment, which says this is what all um, signatories to the UNCRC should be doing. So that's the basis on which this work is moving forward. Um, as I say, we're doing it uh, via a project that commenced about a year ago. Um, it's a project looking at participation methods that are currently adopted across the various NICS departments, looking at where there are gaps, where there's perhaps inconsistencies, and just trying to bring a coherence to this whole area. Um, that, that is really the focus of the work. The stated aim of the project, if I can just read it, is to provide an inclusive participation mechanism open to all children and young people, which provides them with the opportunity to contribute their views and influence policy development and decision-making on issues which impact on their lives. I chair that project board, and just to give you a flavour of who's on it um, and who's contributing to it, um, every department is represented. Uh, on the board. We also have Professor Laura Lundy, who I know the committee heard from a couple of months ago, um, providing expert advice. We also have representation from the um, Commissioner for Children and Young People on the board as well, um, as they obviously have a keen interest in, in this area. So what have we been doing to date? Well, I guess we've, we've largely been in the evidence gathering phase up until now. Um, looking at participation structures across other UK jurisdictions and um, in ROI. Uh, it's important that we look to see how others are doing it. Um, and I know the committee also heard um, earlier in the year from ROI colleagues on how they um, ensure that there's participation of children and young people in decision making. And we have looked also at the structures and arrangements that they have in place. We've also been looking at how individual departments here in Northern Ireland currently do it. Um, I think it would be fair to say there's, there's a variable level of engagement. Um, some are very advanced and have dedicated youth panels that inform their work um, on a regular basis. Others um, are perhaps less advanced and um, in some cases, perhaps still need to be convinced um, of the relevance of, in, of involving children and young people in decisions, um, because the, it's maybe not as immediately obvious what impact their decision will have on children and young people. But I think it's, as the UNCRC reminds us, it's difficult to almost conceive of any policy decision that doesn't have some impact on children and young people at some stage.
Um, one of the key um, products of the, of the project to date has been the um, production of a set of participation principles. And um, I can certainly go into a wee bit more detail on what they include later, but this would almost be a sort of contract that departments would sign up to, committing them to a certain standard and level of engagement. Um, and it's based on, in, on the work we have done, uh, looking at what others, other jurisdictions are doing, but also engagement with children and young people themselves around what would you expect and how would you like it to be done. Um, so we can talk about what those principles are, are looking like. And as I say, we have heard directly from children and young people. The Education Authority set up a youth panel that effectively has been the advisory group to the project board. And we in invited them along to a, a, at least one project board meeting. They've looked at the principles that we had developed. They've turned them into more user-friendly, child, young people um, friendly language and we can share some of what their work has produced to date as well if the committee would like to hear about that. And I suppose where are we now? We're at the stage of starting to think you know what are some of the options uh, around uh, making all of this more consistent? What sort of facilitated support might departments need to help them engage more effectively because you know if this has told us anything it can't be just a tokenistic going out with a questionnaire there's all sorts of uh, work required to ensure that that engagement is meaningful that it is couched in terms that children and young people can relate to the very material that you use has to be developed with a, a particular child and young person focus in mind. So we're, we're working through with departments what that might look like. The next main step over the summer will be to throw the net a bit wider in terms of who we talk to. I mentioned who was on the project board and it's essentially government departments and a, a couple of those external um, expert voices. But we are very conscious that the community and voluntary sector has a key role to play here. Um, there clearly is a need to ensure that the voice of all children and young people are um, captured in this process. And there will, be, uh, there will be children and young people that can only really be reached through certain community and voluntary sector organisations. So we're planning over the summer um, a series of engagements with the sector, with the broader sector around the role that they could play in any um, enhanced um, network of engagement and to get their views uh, on where we've got to and what the next steps should be. And I guess in summarising what we think the next steps will be, as I say, it will be to try and firm up on what, a, an, what a, an identified option might look like, deciding on what the roles and responsibilities should be for the various players um, in that, getting departments to sign up to these principles that, that I mentioned earlier and, and ensuring that they are fit for purpose, 
um, we need to assess demand if we're going to set up some sort of facilitated support for departments who want to engage with children and young people we need a sense of what the um, likely demand is going to be for that um, and therefore what capacity it needs to uh, be able to deal with. And then of course there's are there cost implications? There may well be if we set up something that's going to help to um, manage that process and then there are funding questions as well around how the beneficiaries or recipients of that would contribute or otherwise. Um, and as well as the, in terms of the timeline, we're hoping to be able to bring recommendations on all of that um, to the minister um, in the autumn, probably October, November. But I'm conscious that this cuts right across all departments, so it will be for all departmental ministers to consider and, and hopefully sign up to. So that's where we've got to. Um, as I say, the project aims to bring a consistency. Um, it's not to say that there isn't engagement going on, there is, and we can certainly give some examples of that. A lot of that engagement in, in, in many senses has been accelerated over the last year um, with COVID. There has been a necessity to ensure that that engagement takes place. Um, uh, I don't think we would say it has been perfect by any means, but it has almost demonstrated to policymakers um, the value and need and benefits of engaging directly with children and young people. Okay, um, well, and that, of course, will be part of the objective going forward. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for that opening statement, Paul. I just have one quick question before I bring other members in. So what, what are the Department of Education's youth participation principles and how do they see young people's participation in decision-making project and the children and young persons strategy um, align with the Lundy model of giving children and young people space, voice, audience and influence? Well, we, we've effectively adopted the Lundy model in, in the way the project is shaping up. I have, as I have to say, all of this is still within the project development space, so none of it has been signed up to yet. It hasn't got to the stage of being signed up to by departments, but it would, if agreed, adopt the Lundy model, and the principles would include the following. Um, Departments would be asked to ensure that in their annual business planning, they include um, an identification of participation requirements with children and young people. So it's about building it in to that annual business planning process. Secondly, there would be a consideration of the need to be taken to the preparation and lead-in time this is about the space. It can't just be landed on children and young people. You need to plan for this. You need to consider even their school terms, when they're going to be available, all of those sort of considerations. It would require early engagement in the policy process. So departments will be signing up to engaging at the point at which influence can still be made, not after the fact. Um, and that goes to for areas of um, legislation design um, and that there would be really a co-design commitment built in. 
that you would start from the position that seeking the views of children and young people is standard practice unless there is a compelling reason to the contrary. There would be effective planning of participation needs based on robust estimates of timelines. There would be efforts spent in the drafting of material, including easy read versions and children and young people friendly versions. There would be a commitment to provide feedback, again a key principle in the Lundy model, and certainly what we have heard in talking to children and young people, it's no good just asking from them for their views if you don't go back and tell them what you've done with them. Um, we would ensure early participation extends to the development of legislation. We would ensure they and their staff have the capacity, skills and experience to do this. A key part of this is around equipping departments and ensuring that they have the confidence and the skills to engage. It's, it's not just something people can do as an add-on um, if they haven't the skills and knowledge of how to do it effectively. So those are the principles. That's the sort of thing that we would be asking departments to sign up to. Children and young people have turned those into children's versions, which we can also share with the committee again in draft. Um, but it's, it'll be quite a culture change, I think, in some areas. But as I say, in, in others, it's already happening. Okay, um, that that there obviously positive principles. I don't want to be too negative today, but. Why is this not already in place and why was it not used to inform COVID response decision making? Well, a lot, as I say, a lot of it is in place, but it's not consistent across the whole of government. And from a DE perspective, a lot of those principles were deployed, as I say, over the COVID period. There was engagement with children and young people um, on, for example, the examinations process. Um, I think it's the, what we're engaged in now is around bringing a more coherent, standard approach that ensures that it's done to the relevant quality and that there is engagement at the early stage and it's built in and it's not reactionary. I think a lot of what has happened at, at various times has been in response and there will always be of course events like COVID where there is a need to engage in response to something that hasn't been anticipated but if you have a regular and ongoing relationship and engagement channels in place you have the systems there to enable you to then respond urgently if you need to do so um, and I think you know it it's the case that this project's looking right across government. Um, so we have identified some very, very good practice in, the er in areas like justice, um, with a lot of regular and ongoing engagement with children and young people on issues that impact them. Again, health would have a lot of regular and ongoing engagement, perhaps because they see a very immediate connection to the implications for children and young people. But in other parts of government, um, more work will need to be done. Okay. If these youth participation principles and this young people's participation in decision-making model 
had been in place, would the Department of Education's response uh, to the COVID pandemic on behalf of children and young, young people been significantly better? I think it's very difficult to say, Chair, to be honest. Um, I think we did develop engagement arrangements to re in response to the challenges being faced. Um, and I know that those engagement arrangements are ongoing and are being built upon. Um, you know, we are where we are. The project hadn't um, developed to the extent that perhaps we would like it to have been developed before all of this hit us. I imagine that's probably true for other departments as well. But to some extent, it has accelerated the um, the. The, the involvement of departments in their engagement with children and young people, and to, it may even hopefully have um, demonstrated the benefits of the project that might have been more difficult to do um, a year ago or 18 months ago. I think it's it's impossible to say whether it would have um, helped uh, in, a, in addition to what we actually put in place in response to the issues. but. Um, I suppose it's hard to say that it wouldn't have been good to have it in place. I think it undoubtedly would have helped, and I think the Minister's prioritisation of youth participation um, increased visibly uh, as the pandemic progressed and was seen notably in relation to engagement with organisations like the Secondary Students' Union in Northern Ireland in relation to the most recent set of um, alternative awarding arrangements. Um, so is it is it a departmental and ministerial priority now? And then I'll, I'll move on. Well, we've, we've just had an opportunity to brief the new minister on the project. Um, she's very supportive um, of the objectives and aims. Obviously, we need to bring forward the concluding recommendations. You know, there are various models you could put in place here. Um, so certainly there is a, there is ministerial um, endorsement for the direction of travel. Okay, thank you. Can I bring? I'll go through um, the the party list here. Can I bring uh, in Nicola Brogan, MLA, please? Thanks, Chair, and thanks again for um, your briefing here this morning. Um, the first question I just want to pick up on something you'd say, Paul, in your uh, presentation was that the Education Authority had set up a youth panel. And so far, did you say there's only been one meeting with um, children and young people? Or, or... No, I, they set up a youth panel to, to specifically support this project. And they have a whole range of um, other mechanisms for engagement with children and young people and have a huge reach. But we, to some extent, in this particular project, wanted to demonstrate um, good practice in the involvement of children and young people in the work we were doing. So they set up a specific panel to support the work of this project. The panel have joined our project board on one occasion, but they have met separately on a number of occasions. And they've done quite a lot of work, um, often just after our project board. So the sequencing would have been the project board met um, then the, the youth panel met sometimes that evening, sometimes the next day, looking at what we had discussed, feeding back to us their views 
on the, the way we were proposing to move forward. And it was the most significant product that the, that, that youth panel produced was then a children and young people's version of those principles. Um, and you won't be able to see this, but it was a, they produced it in, in a diagram format using leaves on a tree, simplified, you know, really, when, we, when they presented this to us, um, I think our reaction was, well, it's a pity we hadn't sort of phrased it like that because it was so much more understandable. Um, so certainly if I gave the impression that well, they've only been involved with us once, that's not the case at all. They've been involved at the board once, but they've had a whole series of meetings shadowing the board. Well, that's good, Paul. That, that, that did kind of raise concern with me. Was it just maybe a, a bit of a tick box exercise of we have engaged with youth? But no, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'll just move on then to what I want to ask you initially. Um, so really, your role is to scope out the potential for making children and young people's voices heard within the decision-making process. Um, so when it comes to issues such as mental health and one that I've been raising consistently, consistently, consistently with it throughout the committee is about relationship and sexual education and the need for it to be um, modernised and standardised. Um, we know how critical these issues are for young people at the moment. Um, so can you tell me how you're going to ensure that children and young people's voices are heard whenever you are developing the policy around just those two that I've specified, mental health and RSE? Well, it, it all comes back to the principles and um, the extent to which departments and ministers sign up to them. Um, they're already signed up to the commitment in the children and young people's strategy, which says we will um, ensure that the voice of children and young people is heard and listened to in decision making. So there's already a commitment to, to do that. These principles almost articulate that further and describe what that should look like. And as I say, it's, it's effectively saying that it should be the default and there would almost be a case to answer where children and young people hadn't been consulted in any particular policy decision or area. The, the proposal though also doesn't only, it doesn't only want to have a system where children and young people are being asked for their views on, on the agenda that is set by government. There needs to be an opportunity for children and young people to feed in their views on what the agenda should be um, and where there are areas that they feel change is required. So we're looking at how there could be that um, you know, two-way process um, so that if there are particular issues that children and young people want departments to address, that they have an opportunity to feed in that view. In terms of the two areas that you specifically mention, um, uh, they're not my policy areas, but they're areas where which would come within the scope of these principles as and when they're signed up to. But as I say, it's good practice already to involve children and young people's views in any policy area. So I would expect that if work is being done on those, that the views of children and young people would be sought. Yeah, well, uh, like I appreciate that they are part of the, you've made this commitment through those principles and as a default position, and it definitely should be. But I just want to know how you're going to ensure that children and young people's voices are going to be heard. It's, it's 
all well and good having it as a principle and a default position, but we need to ensure they actually are heard whenever we're creating um, policy because that that's exactly what this morning's um, whole kind of session has been about, is being listening to children and young people because they're the ones experiencing it, they're the ones that know exactly what they need. Well, if, if it's built into the business planning process, there would be a, almost a requirement on, on those policy areas to report on how they had engaged in children, with children and young people. So that provides a visibility. Obviously, the committee, in considering any area of policy that the, the department brings forward, um, would be in a position to ask how have the views of children and young people been sought in this particular policy area and to some extent hold uh, the policy areas to account against the principles. So I think we're trying to build in a visibility that will to some extent expose where it isn't happening. Um, but you're right, it requires commitment from the top that from the top down and it requires a genuine um, honest determination to do this, which is why I think one of the key products of this project will be cross-departmental buy-in at ministerial level, that engagement with children and young people is going to be a priority, and then flowing from that in business plans, in individual um, policy development work, and in the scrutiny by the committee and others, there will be um, an expectation that areas will be giving an account of how they've done it. Thanks, Paul. Um, listen, I think you make a fair point there, and I suppose it is for all of us um, in our individual roles to make sure that children and young people are listened to. I just do think from this morning's briefing that um, it is really important that we do take on their viewpoints uh, moving forward. And even as the Chair um, has mentioned earlier, that the former Minister, uh, Peter Weir, even um, adopted that approach throughout the pandemic as well. But listen, thanks so much for um, all that information. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Nicola. Can I bring in Robin Newton, MLA? Thank you, Chair. And I really don't have uh, a lot of uh, to raise a lot of questions. I think maybe just very quickly, Paul. Um, in terms of uh, the work done so far, I mean, it would suggest to me that what you're reporting would be certainly well up there, if not better than best practice uh, across the UK. Would that, would that be right? Well, this is why it's so useful to have Laura Lundy on our group, because she, as you know, is the sort of expert on all practices. And uh, you know, she is, is certainly supportive. I don't think I'm misrepresenting her of the sort of direction of travel here. Um, she, she, had, she advised us to look, I think, at the Irish approach as the sort of probably the exemplar. Um, she also suggested we look at the Scottish approach. We did so. I, I think our assessment would be that we're around the same level as the Scots, but if we progress in the way I'm outlining, um, we would certainly move ahead and we would consolidate a much more coherent approach. Um, Professor Lundy's, I think, view of the strength of the approach we're sort of suggesting um, is that it, it's, 
it's being led from government, it's being led from the centre, and that if we put any sort of arrangements in place, her view would be there are real strengths in coordinating it from the centre, um, because you then ensure that the views, well, you, you certainly make it more likely that the views are listened to. And uh, you know, this isn't about contracting out something that you can then either look at or ignore. So it's about trying to build it right into the core of our business and our decision making. And yes, if that's the way we go, uh, Professor Lundy's view is we would become um, really one of the best in class. Okay, Chair, just one, one word, Paul. I think it is, it's implicit within everything that you have said, but it's, uh, I think, in the terms of where you're coming from, a very important word, and that is just that simple word, communication, uh, and, and, and emphasizing the need for continual and upgrading and uh, communication at all, all levels. But I'm sure that's implicit within uh, everything you've, you've been talking about. Yes, and I think any net, any sort of arrangements we put in place, this is a complicated space. You know, there are so many organisations that would need to be part of it. Um, the Education Authority already has very good reach in terms of access to children and young people, but it's, it wouldn't be sufficient. There needs to be the involvement of the community and voluntary sector. I was, in, I was listening to the session just before this and interested how they had you know, used the likes of Barnardo's and Save the Children. And there's all sorts of organisations that have reached to the views of children and young people that this network will need to incorporate and communication will be key to make that work. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thanks, Robin. Can I bring in Daniel McCrossan, MLA, please? Apologies for the delay, Paul. We should have Daniel McCrossan with us. Are we not? Is he in the spotlight? Are you in the spotlight? Okay, maybe we could move to Robbie Butler, MLA, and I'll come back to Daniel when we have him. Robbie? Thank you, Chair. Yeah, Thanks, you're probably okay. Thank you guys for that presentation. Um, it's very worthwhile. And um, just for, for, for note for you guys too, the, the Youth Parliament will be starting here soon. And um, with regard to how the team here went about their recruitment and getting their voices, it was, was really, really good. And um, they, I think they did something quite radical in terms of getting the voices of people perhaps that don't normally be heard. Um, so with regard to my first question, um, did you find that COVID limited access to, to really getting a broad range of young people's voices. And, and we're very aware that um, a lot of young people, in fact, probably the majority of young people probably don't get their voices heard. There are some young people who um, are quite vocal and, and, and can do that, but still in all, a lot of young people, perhaps particularly in the round looked after children, sometimes it's hard to reach them. And as I've said, COVID obviously potentially offered a, a, a greater problem for you guys. How did you go about sort of uh, tackling that. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Like the the sort of implications of COVID, of course, drove us all on technologies that um, is just 
way children and young people ordinarily engage. So to some extent, um, the engagement through COVID on the various engagements that had to take place that online was the you know, children and young people were far more comfortable and um, used to that than a lot of the rest of us. But yes, you know, there's not you can't um, there there are clear advantages and benefits of face to face and indeed some of the most recent work that has that we've done. Um, that the Education Authority has done, for example, with the Department for Communities around the um, the sport and, and physical activity strategy, um, involved face to face, you know, socially distanced engagements. Yes, you're restricted, and your numbers have to be smaller, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it just requires you, I think, to think more carefully about who you are involving, making sure that of representation across. Um, all the appropriate categories, given that you can't perhaps throw the net quite as wide. So there have been, there have been pros and cons with, with COVID, but I think we will take the best of online as we move out of this, but be able to supplement it with more face-to-face. -face. In terms of your question um, around um, the implication, sorry, what was your, what was your other question, Robbie? So, yeah, it was in and around um, probably young people who perhaps don't often have much. So, look at children, but just, just to kind of add this one in, then obviously, um, one of the critiques, I suppose, and it's nobody's fault, this is absolutely nobody's fault, but COVID then um, faced this, uh, pushed us into this, the realms of using um, online technology where you know young people have to have access to devices and broadband connections and so on. So, I'm thinking perhaps of those families perhaps who don't, you know, don't don't have that facility or have limited facility and that's going to be perhaps those in the more socially deprived areas so just was that able to be addressed in any way that's a, you know those are very good points and indeed they they're factors that will have to be built in to any model that come out of this and the, your point even around ensuring that um you know hard to reach groups are not excluded from this process is something that the project board is very vocal and certainly the children's commissioner has raised on the project board a number of occasions which is why i think we will absolutely need to work through specific um voluntary and community groups that you know represent those smaller community those smaller groups of children and young people um, it also, I think there's also the challenge, and you mentioned too, about particularly vocal versus the, there's a risk that we hear from the same voices uh, where we think we're getting a representative view, but we're not actually getting a representative view. So the project is very mindful of that as well. And we'll be looking at how any proposal coming forward doesn't just tap into the views of the most vocal but that the silent majority, for want of a better phrase, is also represented. That's really good. Um, I, I know this is not necessarily the same, same thing, but I know the Youth Assembly, for instance, in terms of when they were getting the representation of the people that applied, I think they did a random selection as opposed to an interview process and that type of thing, which was great because it meant that it was probably a, a fairer approach to ensuring that perhaps some people who maybe sometimes don't have the confidence to say what they're thinking or feeling and so on. I mean, we really do need to get those young people a voice. I've only got one other question, guys, because anything with regard to getting the voice of young people, all of us will be 
uh, unanimous and, and giving it as much support as we can. What does success look like? So, so uh, if we get this to the point where there is an agreed strategy, the principles have been agreed, um, that we do have a cross-departmental participation, um, what will, how will we measure success? Um, because obviously there's no point in doing it, and you covered this, Paul, to be fair. This isn't a talking shop, it's not, it's not meant to be a talking shop. Um, how will we measure success, and who will have the responsibility, I suppose, the, the, who's going to be the senior responsible owner for this then? You, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it sort of depends, I suppose, on the model that is adopted, but one option certainly would be that there would be a sort of coordination of it, um, possibly from this department, um, and there would therefore come with that a, a, an expectation of monitoring how effective it was being and measuring the impact it is having. The ultimate measure of success will be better policy making and better um, delivery of services and a more responsive children and young people focused um, uh, process within government departments. Now, that sounds, well, how do you measure that? You measure that in individual areas by asking policymakers how did their engagement with children and young people change any something they were proposing to do? How did it influence the policy? What did it um, what new options or avenues did it open up to you? How did it change how you even promoted it? Um, and you know, small examples we're hearing from the likes of the of the sport and recreation um, strategy when they engage with children and young people you know one of the messages coming back to them was we wouldn't we wouldn't all respond to a message that was focused on fitness because we're not all turned on by that particular messaging but most people respond to a message focused on fun and therefore emphasize that dimension to what you're proposing. And that's something I think that reshaped how they are planning to deploy, market and promote a lot of what they're proposing to do. It's a small example, but we would be hoping to capture how engagement changed things. And I think that will be um, the key measure. Brilliant. Well, listen, I'm just going to say one last thing. It's not a question, guys. That was a really good answer, Paul. Um, certainly, it's, it, there's been thought put into it. Um, I think there's merit in this if you want, if, if it's useful at all for you. I think uh, we, we've missed something in our programme for government where I would like to have seen a model, a model much more like the New Zealand model where they have well-being as a, a tangible outcome that's measured. Um, young people are particularly engaged on two subjects at the moment. One's mental health and well-being, and the other is climate. But everything feeds into well-being, whether it's prosperity, whether it's access to services, whether it's good housing and so on. So I think well-being perhaps is maybe one of those things that you could have as a as a targeted outcome, um, which would give you a really good indication that you know, are we being listened to? Uh, is there evidence of our voices being listened to and actioned? Um, and then that's the, obviously at the very top strategic level, but but I think that would be maybe something useful. So um, thanks, thanks, thank you, Chair. Thanks, Robbie. Daniel McCrossan, MLA. Otherwise, we'll go to Dan Dodds, MLA. 
Thank you, Thanks, Chair. Um, so this just uh, follows on from Robbie's um, question, because I, I do think this is important. One of the interesting things uh, when I was at Further Education College in Lisburn was that young people, um, for young people engaging online is very normal and very natural because it's the society and the time that they live in. And actually when they went for their elections for their student council, there was greater participation because it was online. So sometimes we, we shouldn't sh throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, a combined approach is, is sometimes really good. I suppose, Paul, really all I want to know and to be reassured is that you're also talking to the uniformed organizations, the Girls Brigade, the Boys Brigade, the, the, the Scouts, uh, those organizations that entirely voluntary but do a huge huge range of work in our community and for me and my family um have been hugely beneficial so ju just to make sure that those are the sort of organizations you're also talking to as well i also agree with robbie i think well-being is an incredibly important measurement and how people feel about um, things that are being done for them by policymakers. So I think well-being is a huge measurement and would be well, uh, could be well embedded in the strategy for everyone's benefit. But really, importance of talking to those kind of uniformed church organisations, which don't always have a voice and aren't always heard. Yes, well, I can certainly give that assurance. Um, as I say, over the next couple of months, the, the sort of widening the net on engagement invo will involve a whole series of sessions with the uh, community and voluntary sector. It will include the uniformed organisations. It will include um, EA registered groups, non-registered groups, um, various um, charities like Save the Children, like Bernardo's, the groups that were mentioned earlier. Really, just to see, we all have a part to play in this, and they all represent different sort of constituents. And we want to make sure that our access is as comprehensive as possible. And you know, back to the point I was talking about, it, it's important that we don't end up just always talking to the same thirty or forty children and young people who are very politically mobilized and um, astute and turned on because we get a, an equally distorted view if that's our if that's what we do so the objective here is to make sure that we have the, a really wide uh, cohort to engage with there will be specific policies where it will be necessary go to go to specific groups at various times you know if you were consulting on a particular issue relating to um, a particular disability or whatever, you would obviously want to then use the access that it, that a charity or, or youth organisation that has a focus on that would give you. And the plan would be to make sure that that's the case. And I've, I've taken the point on wellbeing that you've, that you've both made and we will be how I totally agree. Um, that has to be the ultimate aim for those that are contributing here, that they feel they've been listened to and that their, their lot has been improved. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for that question, Diane. Harry, do you want to ask a brief question or comment? Yeah, you'll be very brief. Yeah, no problem. Chair, thank you very much. <clears throat> and the two polls, thank you very much. 
I was just wondering, you mentioned at the start uh, gaps and inconsistencies. I'm just wondering what they were. And, I mean, to roll it all into one here, you mentioned the wider net in the summer. That's very good because it is important to get the voice of all. And as I mentioned earlier, the hard to reach ones' opinions are as important as the ones that are easy. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Harry. Um, well, we, we did an audit of departments um, and their agencies to find how they currently engage. And I suppose maybe it's difficult, you know, I don't want to sort of name names and say, you know, certain departments um, are better than others. Uh, I sort of have already said that, that justice is particularly well advanced. Health seems to be well advanced. I think it's departments that maybe don't immediately see the sort of link and, and immediate relevance for children and young people of some of the, the policies that they might be developing um, that don't have perhaps as coordinated and as almost immediate structures in place to do this. And that's what this project is about doing. It's trying to help those departments to get the access that they would find difficult you know, there are departments that have access to children and young people. This department is an example. Health is an example. Justice is an example. But others don't have an necessarily an immediate um, and obvious route to secure those views and would find it a bit of a barrier and a bit of an obstacle. So this is about ensuring that there is a clear route to accessing the views of children and young people. It's not about those departments outsourcing it because all the evidence shows that they need to be involved in the process, that the actual process is nearly as important as the product because you learn so much from just sitting down with or on the Zoom with the group of children and young people. So. Um, Everybody's not quite at the same place, but the objective of this is to try and bring everybody to the same place. Okay. Yep, that's fine. Thank you. Yeah, hi. Thanks, Chair. Thanks very much. Okay. Paul, Paul, thank you very much indeed for the time that you've given us today. Um, the Education Committee has obviously prioritised youth engagement, uh, so we wish you well with this project, and we look forward to keeping up to date to pro with progress. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Okay, Clark, would you like to summarise any actions or requests for additional information resulting from the briefing? Um, Chair, I think that was covered relatively comprehensively and we can ask for um, an update from the team later on um, in the autumn term while they're proceeding with that. That's Unless great. members have any specific questions they'd like us to write about. Members, any specific questions or, or follow-up points or content to note? Not content with that. Okay. Thank you, members. Thank you, members. Then we can move to agenda item seven, which is our briefing from the Northern Ireland Assembly Research and Information Service on school uniform policy and comparative best practice. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove all members from the spotlight and to add our witness, which is uh, Sinead McMurray, Research Officer at the Northern Ireland Assembly Research Office. Can I refer members to a clerk's brief on this item in tabled items and a research and information service briefing paper 
on school uniforms, cost, gender and behavioural considerations at page 127. Can I invite Sinead to brief the Education Committee on this helpful research paper? Thank you, Sinead. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much. Um, so the purpose, I suppose, of the presentation today um, is to provide an overview of a paper um, that was prepared for um, the Education Committee. Um, and really it's about areas of concern and debate um, on uniforms, specifically around the cost um, of school uniforms, which is a long-standing concern. Um, and I suppose more recently, the gendered implications of school uniforms um, have entered the debate. So particularly um, around gender segregated uniform um, policies, which is um, traditionally skirts for um, girls and trousers for boys. Um, and I suppose how these can reinforce um, unhelpful gender stereotypes and also the difficulties that uniforms can pose for children who are transgender, gender questioning or transitioning. Um, so I suppose just to focus first on um, cost, it has been recognised, I suppose, as a financial strain, um, particularly for low-income families. Um, and there's evidence to suggest um, that families are finding the cost um, particularly difficult this year in the context of the pandemic. Um, the Nuffield Foundation and the Resolution Foundation in England have done some research um, that identified um, that low-income families have occurred additional costs as a result of the pandemic. So things like additional heating costs, um, additional costs on the education of their children, um, additional food costs with having the families at home. And in combination with that, some of the strategies that they would generally use to, I suppose, stretch their budget and make the budget last till the end of the month um, have been removed. And that came up particularly in the Nuffield research with regard to school uniforms. So examples um, that were given by people to part in the research were that they would go to several different shops to get the best value on school shoes. They would use charity shops, uniform swap shops, and um, that they would rely on, I suppose, family members to provide um, second-hand uniforms for them. And a lot of those ways of managing the budget and uh, trying to afford the school uniform were removed because of the lockdowns um, and, I suppose, the, 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 the pandemic. Um, so in 2014, um, the Children's Commission on Poverty published a report on how um, poverty can affect uh, children's experience of school. And the report actually noted that school uniforms can play a really positive role in um, what they term as poverty-proofing the classroom. Um, so everybody dressing the same means that it's more difficult, I suppose, to identify somebody's social background. Families aren't incurring costs related to kids having to have the latest trainers, the latest um, pairs of jeans. Um, and overall, it's cheaper to have, I suppose, two sets of uniforms rather than having to constantly update child's wardrobe with the latest trends. Um, and I suppose this has been supported by several sort of other research projects on school uniforms, um, in particular the Children's Society, who have done UK-wide research on the cost of school uniforms, I suppose, for the last decade or so. They've done um, research at various points, um, and they also identified that uniforms can reduce um, the stigma for um, children living in poverty. Um, but at the same time, the society has also noted that the cost the high cost of uniforms um, across the UK, particularly for branded items, um, and for uh, parents are required to use a particular supplier to buy school uniforms, are undermining that kind of equalising potential of the school uniform and an actual factor placing more pressure on parents because of the cost. Um, so in terms of, I suppose, what the actual cost of school uniforms are, um, the most recent research, um, which was a UK-wide representative survey carried out by the Children's Society in 2020, 
um, they identified that it was £337, roughly, was the average that was being spent on a secretary school uniform um, and £315 spent on a primary school uniform. Um, and I suppose what was interesting about that was when the parents were asked what would be a reasonable cost and what would you consider to be, um, I suppose, affordable, and they suggested around 105 for a secondary school uniform um, and 85 for a primary school uniform. So really the costs that they were occurring were three times more than what they thought was reasonable um, and I suppose what they could afford. Um, I think it's worth pointing out though, I suppose, that it is very difficult to pin down I suppose what the hard and fast costs of uniforms are um, simply because any of the research that's done they use I suppose different time points and different methods of analysis, they ask different questions. Um, so, for example, the um, Commission for Children in Northern Ireland did research in 2017, and they found that the average cost was around £200, um, and that included everything, school uniform, PE, um, equipment for school. Um, and then, more recently, the Irish um, League of Credit Unions um, did some research as well, and they found it was around £170 for a secondary school uniform. Um, so, they're all using quite different methods of um, measuring the cost, but I suppose there are a number of um, common themes that emerge from the research um, that indicate where, where I suppose the bottleneck is with those costs. Um, so for the research that was done by the Children's Society in 2020, um, two thirds of the secondary school parents were required to buy two or more items um, from a specific supplier, and over half of primary school parents were required to buy items, one or more items from a specific supplier. And where that was the case, um, the uniforms were considerably more expensive um, than if they were buying, say, off the peg in a, in a retail store in, in, on the high street. Um, and in some cases, particularly with primary school uniforms, it was noted to be up to 50% more expensive. Um, and the same was noted by research um, that was carried out, as I mentioned, in 2017 by the Commissioner for Children and Young People. Um, they noted that 49% of respondents had to buy their uniforms from a particular supplier, which increased the cost. And they also noted other things like the grammar school uniforms were 25% more expensive than secondary school uniforms. Um, and I suppose that has implications um, when research has demonstrated that um, parents will take into account the cost of the school uniform and the cost of sending the child to a particular school when they're deciding um, what school they should go to. Um, and I suppose the, the, the research that's um, most recently published in 2020 um, by the Irish League of Credit Unions, they found that 54% of families um, found the cost of returning to school was a significant financial burden. And now that included everything, like the cost of school lunches, the cost of school transport, um, but the cost of school uniform was a significant factor that the parents mentioned um, in that difficulties affording it. Um, and they had mentioned that one third of parents had um, chosen to forgo purchasing certain items, um, I suppose, just to manage the budget a bit better. The research also noted that 32% of parents stated that they were going into some form of debt in, in the school year to afford um, to send their children back. Um, so I suppose looking at um, the various policies that are being enacted around um, managing and trying to manage and help with the cost of school uniforms, um, if we look across the UK, in 2019, the Welsh Government were the first in the UK to introduce um, statutory guidance on school uniforms. Um, so currently, um, Scotland don't have any guidance relating to um, school uniforms, and the guidance is currently in place in England and in Northern Ireland is um, non-statutory. Um, so the Welsh Government have taken the step in 2019 to introduce statutory guidance around it. 
um, and they have stated that when introducing changes or considering changes to a school uniform policy, that schools are required to give the highest priority to cost and affordability. And so their main, I suppose, um, point within the document is that no school uniform should be so expensive as to leave pupils with a families feeling able to apply for a particular school. Um, and the guidance gives a number of areas around where um, parents should consider, or schools are, should consider um, trying to reduce the cost. And in particular, they highlighted that um, uniforms should have basic items and colours, um, but not styles. So they can be bought from non-specific um, suppliers, such as like supermarket chains and high street, um, that they should avoid high cost items like blazers. Um, and it, um, I suppose the research by the Commissioner for Children and the Children's Society noted that that transition period moving from um, primary school to uh, secondary school is a particularly expensive time because obviously you're buying a whole new set of uniforms and that's where costs of blazers and things which um, is frequently in the research as an expensive part of the purchasing school uniforms. So they're asking them to consider avoiding those kind of um, more expensive items and to avoid having multiple items with large logos. So if the school is insisting on having a logo, that they should maybe have one item, whether that's the school jumper or the school tracksuit has a logo on it. Um, and that other um, items, if they want to have logos on them, they should be able to provide you know, standard logos that can be ironed on or sewed on. Um, easily washable items, um, that's another issue that has been raised, is that um, you know blazers and um, sort of school skirts and things have to be um, dry cleaned. Um, that obviously adds to the cost. Um, the other thing that they mentioned was because it's so frequently mentioned about the fact that purchasing uniforms from particular suppliers um, generally incur additional costs for parents, um, that while they don't stipulate that you can't have a uniform from, um, I suppose, a sole supplier, what they're asking is that the schools will be able to demonstrate that they've undertaken, I suppose, um, activities to uh, get the best value for money. So they either have had a tendering, competitive tendering process or they've actively sought out to get the cheapest um, options available from those sole suppliers and that were possible to pass those savings onto um, the, the parents. Um, they also have to be able to demonstrate that they have um, consulted with um, the parents, community members and um, the pupils themselves um, when they're uh, thinking about changing school uniform or um, adding in uh, items or whatever it might be and they have to be able to demonstrate how um, they took that consultation um, and they also have to publicise how um, parents can complain if they feel that uniform policies are unfair and um, that's something that's also been noted in the research that there is, it feels like there's limited areas for redress around school uniforms um, and so that they need to highlight that. Um, and actually in um, England as well, they are actually going to introduce um, statutory guidance in autumn and that was off the back of the Cost of School Uniforms Act, which was introduced in, um, early, which was introduced in early 2021. Um, and they would have very similar, um, I suppose, uh, commitments within the document, the same as the um, Welsh Government have, around reducing the costs uh, associated with school uniforms, so like that. Um, not having multiple um, items of logos, having to watch items, um, and other ways to reduce the associated costs. Um, and with regard to the guidance here in um, Northern Ireland, it was first introduced in 2013 and it was updated in 2018. And they specifically refer as well to keeping the costs low and keeping the costs manageable for families with a lot of the same suggestions and ideas here. 
but I suppose the guidance is not in statutory footing. Um, so that would be the main difference. So um, just to try and, and get through the content of the paper, um, I'll move on from the costs and then maybe look a bit um, closer at, I suppose, how um, the gendered implications of school uniforms has increasingly in the last couple of years um, entered the debate. Um, and I suppose in terms of how um, it affects particularly female students, um, segregated uniforms are increasingly being challenged, um, I suppose for practical reasons like comfort, um, practicality and movement, um, but also because they may enforce and re um, reinforce unfair or something for gender stereotypes. Um, and I suppose this is thought to be particularly true um, with regard to um, you know, how, how, girl, how girls can function and move using their school uniforms. So um, Alison Happel in her 2013 paper, which is often quoted around this um, particular subject, um, she highlights that school uniforms can, I suppose, confirm traditional gender identities um, and have implications for how girls are treated and um, how they're viewed and also how they move. Um, and I suppose something that's more recently emerged as well is that they impose considerations of modesty and um, language around decency um, that trousers don't. Um, so the notions of skirt, uh, skirts restricting movement, I suppose, has been frequently mentioned um, with regard to girls' participation in PE in school. Um, so in Northern Ireland, there has been, um, I suppose it's been noted that there's a significant decline in female participation um, in PE and in physical activity generally um, once um, female students move into the post-primary level. Um, and while there's a decline across male and female levels of participation, and um, female participation is noticeably lower. Um, and there are, I suppose, that, that's a trend that's reflected internationally as well. Um, and I suppose there are many factors that influence um, girls' partition, participation in PE, and research has shown that there are, you know, it's to do with um, lack of female role models, um, academic pressure, lack of support from um, parents and teachers, and um, lack of, I suppose, choice within the PE curriculum in terms of kind of sports and things that are played. Um, but one of the factors that has been also highlighted um, is the impracticality of some of the PE uniforms um, and the self-consciousness that female students can feel around wearing them. Um, and this has been noted, I suppose, in the Northern Ireland um, Department of Education guidance on uniform policies, um, where they have highlighted that um, the more traditional school PE uniforms can be off-putting for girls, particularly at that post-primary level stage um, and during adolescence. Um, and they are advising um, for schools to use more practical options like um, shorts or skirts, skorts, rather than the traditional skirts and um, uh, PE pants. So um, there was an Australian study, and um, there is some research sorry, to indicate that uh, it, it does impact um, girls' movement. So there was an Australian study that was carried out um, with primary school children, and they looked at the, um, the participation level of boys and girls in um, in terms of how they behaved during recess and lunch breaks and how much activity they did. And they asked them to wear um, pedometers for a month. And they measured the steps of the kids. Um, they had them wear their school, traditional school uniforms of skirt for girls, trousers for boys for two weeks. And then they had them wear shorts, their PE uniforms for another two weeks. Um, and the researchers identified a significant difference um, with regard to the amount of movement that the girls and the children were wearing their traditional school skirt uniform versus um, when they were wearing their uh, PE uniform and the number of steps they took were significantly lower. 
um, and the same did not for, for the boys. There was no difference between um, the movement that they undertook. Um, and, and this is backed up by further research that was taken in Australia. It was attitudinal research um, which was taken again from schoolgirls, and they asked them what were the facilitators and the barriers to um, being more active during um, breaks and recess. The majority of the girls noted that the school unit um, it sort of put them off playing um, more sports like basketball and um, netball and generally just um, being more active in the playground. There were other issues as well, but the school uniform was noted as a significant um, barrier. And it's not included in this paper, but I just I noticed it, um, recently that um, Tashka in Ireland undertaking research and they're trying to promote um, girls cycling. I think there's only one in, one in 250 girls cycling at school at the moment is the figure that they currently have. Um, and the girls have highlighted that the impracticality of the school skirts, among other issues, um, but the school skirt again was highlighted as a particular reason that it's just impractical for them really to cycle to school. Um, and a report by Plan um, International, um, and it was on the state of um, girls' rights in the UK, and again, it was a representative um, survey from all girls across the UK who were aged between 14 and 21, and they also undertook um, focus groups and um, research with academics and um, various youth groups. And um, one of the findings that they had around school uniforms, the school uniforms emerged across a number of themes. Um, and one in particular was that girls felt self-conscious in their school uniforms and that oftentimes the skirts would blow up in the wind, that the shirts were sometimes see-through, and generally they felt quite exposed and felt that the uniforms were impractical. And also, I suppose, quite worryingly, is that one in three uh, of the participants said that they had been um, sexually harassed wearing their school uniform, and it took a variety of forms of catcalling and um, comments, inappropriate touching and um, staring, and generally they can feel um, quite uncomfortable. Um, and another um, issue that was noted um, was the double standards um, around PE uniforms. So one of the participants, are, there was a group of girls who were interviewed from a Belfast um, school, and they stated that the boys were allowed to go home, they had PE at the end of the day, and the boys were allowed to go home in their PE uniform and not change. Um, but girls had to change into the PE uniforms, and it was because it was inappropriate for them to walk home in, in, their, in their PE uniforms. Um, and this, I suppose, is something that has been um, identified. And there isn't this issue of sort of um, the gender stereotyping. It, it's emerged across various different research, but there hasn't been very much specific research on it. So I think it is worthy probably of, of some more research in that area. Um, but there was research carried out by the European Centre for Educational Research. And they looked at um, a range of school uniform policies across Scotland. And what they noted was um, that the language used um, and the rules and regulations were um, more strict and I suppose there were more of them for girls' uniforms policies in comparison to boys' uniforms. And that there was frequently the mention of language around appropriateness, decency, length, um, when with regard to um, the, the length of girls', uh, girls skirts. Um, and I suppose um, that approach, that language around appropriateness and modesty, um, is frequently raised in relation to school dress code controversies that appear in the media. Um, and so, while every year around September time there is the discussion around the cost of school uniforms, but also um, where children generally are being sent home for flouting their, um, I suppose, the school uniform policies, 
And while boys are, I suppose, more as the likely to present home, it's more for things like haircut um, violations or wearing the wrong trainers or wearing trainers measured in their shoes. With girls, it's often with girls, it's often in relation to the length of the skirt, reaching whatever the regulations are. Um, and there are a number of examples of that I have included in the paper. Um, and I suppose some of the academic commentators have highlighted that kind of through the school policies and the use of that terminology, um, there's sort of an implication that women should be, I suppose, more cognizant of their gender. And that's a female responsibility to manage sort of male reactions um, to, I suppose, the fact to the, their, their skirt wearing rather than for males to manage their reactions. Um, and the Chief Inspector of Schools in England recently appeared in front of the um, Education and Skills Committee in England in relation to um, a report that was produced on sexual harassment within school education. And she was questioned on what was anecdotal evidence around um, primary school um, primary school teachers and uh, boards of governors asking primary school girls to wear shorts underneath their school uniforms. Um, and increasingly, um, Note, note that primary secondary school girls and noting that they were um, increasingly conscious of the concept of upskirting and were wearing um, prote like protective garments like shorts underneath their school uniforms. And she also acknowledged that um, it's important to avoid, I suppose, a notion of victim blaming and that it's more, uh, there needs to be cultural education around uh, appropriate, um, I suppose, education through um, religious or relationship and sexual education um, in terms of um, educating boys and girls around what is appropriate around that kind of area. Um, the, just moving on then to talk about, I suppose, um, I suppose the difficulties that school uniforms and segregated school uniform policies um, can be problematic for um, non-binary, transgender and um, transitioning students. Um, and school uniform policies, I suppose, that have separate rules for boys and girls can undermine students' rights to, to gender neutrality and experimentation and overall wider inclusion within um, the, school, the school community. Um, and currently, um, research on the experience of transgender children with regards to school uniforms in Northern Ireland is limited, um, but it has been frequently mentioned, I suppose, in the wider explorations of um, transgender and gender non-conforming youth in Northern Ireland. Um, so there was a small study undertaken in 2017 um, by Queen's University, and they undertook um, in-depth interviews with children who were transitioning or who were transgender. Um, and one of the areas that was frequently raised was around school uniforms and, and the limited options that children felt, or that people felt that they had with regard to school uniforms. Um, and one of the comments was that they felt they either had the option of going to school in drag, so wearing clothes that were the opposite of the gender that they identified with, or incurring um, school school sanctions. Um, and where they did, I suppose, go in um, clothes that were outside of their prescribed uniform policy, um, they said that they were subject to um, homophobic and transphobic abuse on a regular or almost daily basis. Um, and it was a study in 2013, which was commissioned by and the then asked the Minister and Deputy First Minister, and that was on the experience of transgender ch children and young people living in Northern Ireland. Um, and again, the segregated um, school uniform policies emerged um, as, as a, an area of concern, um, particularly for children who were already, I suppose, anxious and um, conscious of their gender, and um, that wearing school uniforms, particularly P uniforms, have raised um, as being difficult. 
Um, and again, in 2016, the um, Department of Education took research on the experience of gay, lesbian, transgender children in um, Northern Ireland. And again, the PE uniform was um, raised as an issue um, and impractical in some, in some levels. Um, and for transgender children, almost three quarters of transgender children reported that their experiences in school had a negative effect on their well-being and their mental health. Um, and I suppose that isn't related only to solely school uniforms. There are a myriad of other factors that would affect that, but it is, I suppose, worth um, bearing in mind. Um, and in terms of what redress um, children and young people who are transgender or tradition or transitioning or gender non-conforming, um, in terms of what redress they have, um, and this is probably part of a, a wider discussion on overall protection for transgender children in schools. Um, but the Equality Commission for Northern Ireland and more recently in 2021 and um, the expert panel on gender equality um, have noted that although, although schools have a duty not to discriminate um, against pupils on the grounds of sex, sexual orientation, race or disability, um, that law does not apply to gender reassignment. Um, and I suppose this stands in contrast to England, Wales and Scotland where the Equality Act 2010 does provide some um, level of protection for pupils who are um, transitioning or are transgender. Um, and the um, Equality Commission for Regard and the Expert Panel on Gender Equality have identified that that is a specific gap in protections for children who are, who are gender minorities. Um, so positively, in 2019, the Education Authority um, released guidance for schools on how to support transgender children um, in education settings. And um, they highlighted that even though there is that aforementioned gap in the legislation, um, that schools should ensure that transgender children are not suffering unfairly um, because of school uniform policies. Um, and they recommended that while schools could have, um, I suppose, a gender segregated uniform where they could have a gender neutral uniform policy, that they should allow um, transgender children the option of um, choosing a uniform that, I suppose, ascribes to what they're identifying their gender as now, as opposed to what they think it was at birth. Um, but generally, the um, Education Authority in that um, guidance recommended that um, a gender neutral school uniform policy where there is a trouser option and a skirt option but they're not ascribed to a particular gender so they're available for whoever would choose to wear them and um, can have benefits for the wider school community as well and um, not just for I suppose transgender children and that it's an option worth considering for schools um, and Wales when they were introducing their statutory guidance in 2019 they also introduced um, that, that schools should have um, gender neutral school uniform policies um, across the board so they can no longer specify um, this particular uniform is for girls and this particular uniform is for boys, um, but that, that both options should be available to all children. Um, so I think that roughly um, covers the, uh, the areas that we looked at. Um, I did briefly look at the end of the paper um, with regard to there has, I suppose, been um, always been a discussion around whether. Um, school uniforms assist with um, student attainment and um, behaviour and I think um, all of the policies across the UK are um, I suppose very positive about the roles that um, the school uniform can play in encouraging positive school ethos, um, reducing peer pressure, um, instilling respect for authority, 
and um, things like you know reduce the time taken to um, get dressed in the mornings. There's more time for studying, more time for getting to school on time. Um, but the actual, I suppose, and, and, and teachers in particular and researchers show are very supportive of um, school uniform, um, and they have identified the fact that um, it has equalising potential and that it's, I suppose, difficult again, more difficult to pick out a child's background um, when they're when everybody's wearing the same clothes. Um, but in terms in terms of um, actual evidence um, with regard to whether it influences. Um, attainment and behaviour, and um, there is a lack of robust research evidence on the impact of school uniforms in that regard, um, and the evidence rests mainly on attitudinal research, so like that research that I mentioned, that was, that was carried out in 2020, I think, um, on um, the positive aspects that parents and teachers and um, uh, pupils see about school uniforms, um, but the evidence currently rests mainly on, I suppose, that attitudinal kind of studies or correlation studies, which have compared, I suppose, the performance of schools with uniforms against those without, um, or where a school uniform has been introduced, they've measured the trajectory of improvement after the school uniform has been introduced. Um, but one of the problems with interpreting that evidence is that, I suppose, where a school is in challenging circumstances and they do introduce um, a school uniform, they're often introducing lots of different um, new policies and measures to try and improve the school alongside that. So it's very difficult to isolate what role the uniform has actually had in, in, in encouraging positive behaviour and attainment. Um, and there have been a number of reviews that have been carried out, um, in particular by the Southern Trust and by the Education and the Fund, and they have um, reviewed research evidence on um, various aspects of school and tools that are um, positive in improving the attainment and behaviour in school and they have identified that school uniforms currently there's no robust I suppose, causal link to be identified in terms of their um, value of that regard. Sinead, um, can I, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry to cut across you because this is extremely helpful research as always from you um, but I'm, I'm keen to try and make sure I do create some time for members questions given how rich the presentation and the research you've done is. Um, are there any key key closing comments you, you, you'd like to make before I do that? No, I think that was, I was actually also was just actually a bit to wrap up there anyway. So, um, no, that's, uh, yep, yeah, I'm open to questions or comments generally. That was more or less the basis. Um, obviously, there's a bit more detail in the paper if anyone is, is interested in reading it in more detail in general. That was it. That, thank you, Sinead. And can I can I emphasise uh, a thanks on behalf of the Education Committee that this is a really helpful piece of research and every piece of research you've completed for the education committee to date is is equally as valuable so we're, we're really grateful for the work that you, you do much, on behalf of the committee it's very uh, interesting actually it's very interesting area so um, yeah, it was nice to take part in it thank you can I, my my question Sinead, would be obviously there is standing and growing concern regards the cost and neutrality and suitability of of school uniform and the impact that that is having on equal educational opportunity, pupil wellbeing, even climate change. So we are seeing substantive responses to that in some jurisdictions in terms of robust statutory guidance. We're seeing some individual schools showing leadership on this, and we're even seeing community-based uniform exchanges um, spreading up as well. So how how does the, the, the statutory guidance or lack thereof in Northern Ireland compare with other jurisdictions such as Wales, for example, in trying to respond to 
what does seem to be a growing problem. Um, I'm sorry, you you oh God, the, the connection Can you hear me? Yes, we we can hear you. Can did you hear my question? Okay, no. Yeah, I, I think it was hypos are um compared to other hypos are hypothetical compared to other um, regions. Is it a comparison compared to Moscow uniform? Yeah, yeah. How how does that statutory guidance that's being put in place in other jurisdictions like Wales uh, compared to the guidance that's in place in Northern Ireland? It, it, is our it, I don't want to draw you into a political question, which is effectively, is the guidance that's in place in Northern Ireland adequate to respond to this problem? So I'm trying to say, from a research point of view, how does what is in place in Northern Ireland in terms of guidance compare to that that has been put forward in, in Wales, for example? I think the guidance all of them is very similar. So they all um, make reference to the ways in which um, the cost of food uniforms can be reduced. And all of the guidance have acknowledged that the cost of school uniform, uniforms is a strain um, for families. And it is certainly, it makes up, a, 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 I suppose, a significant part of the guidance. And the guidance covers everything from, you know, gender issues, um, cost, discipline, all those kind of things. But cost is like top of the agenda, I suppose, on the Northern Irish guidance and with regard to the Wales and the English guidance. I think the difference is that it's not statutory. So really, um, a school in Wales now will have to be able to demonstrate that they have um, made every effort possible to make the school uniform for their school as cheap as possible. Um, and they will have to be able to demonstrate how they did that through whether it's consultation or um, through arranging comp more competitive um, arrangements for schools um, when they enter into and go start contracts with school suppliers. Um, so I suppose that gives parents and um, pupils um, more of a footed challenge when they think um, that you know the school uniform policy is unfair. Um, whereas I suppose when it's non-statutory, um, your right to address is probably a bit more limited. But in terms of the content, they're all they're quite similar. Um, and I suppose in some ways the, the recent guidance from the Education Authority around um, supporting um, trans, trans um, gender children and acknowledging um, the benefits of um, gender neutral um, policies, I'd say, um, are, you know, it's quite, it's quite um, forward thinking, um, but it's non-statutory at the end of the day again. So I suppose it, it, there's less opportunity to challenge it. Really. That would be my take, to be honest. Okay. Final question for me, then I'll, I'll go to members. Seemingly some concerning findings on the... Um, don't want to get too detailed here, I suppose, but some concerning findings on the impact of of uh, any actual or perceived requirement on, on girls to wear skirts and dresses as opposed to having the option. Seems like a completely sensible <laughs> option um, of wearing trousers. Do you, have you an idea as to... How, um, how how widespread um, that problem would be in Northern Ireland and, and the extent to which the option to wear trousers is not available to girls in Northern Ireland? Um, I think, um, again, it's a relatively recent um, it's a relatively recent issue, and I suppose a lot of the um, research that are—it's not even research, but a lot of the information that I would have been relying on would be, um, you know, that is 
it emerges in the media every year around September time um, around how um, girls are more increasingly challenging um, the fact that they have to wear skirts to school and their impracticality. Um, but increasingly schools are um, introducing that option. Um, so there was a school recently in, um, I think it was Derry, London Derry, um, St. Cecilia's maybe they have introduced the option of having a skirt or trousers. Um, and the reason that they decided to introduce the option was that the school council had had a vote and overwhelmingly, I think it was about 87% of the people had voted for it to have the option for trousers. Um, and there are a number of other schools that are um, considering the introduction of trousers as well. And, and more particularly for mixed schools, that gender and um, neutral school uniform policy. So I know that I think Methody and um, College in Belfast were introducing um, a gender neutral school uniform policy. They were certainly considering it. Um, so I suppose there's no hard and fast numbers on it, but um, you can certainly see it's something that schools are increasingly looking at, which I mean, it just makes sense from a practical perspective, I suppose the option for both. Okay, and, and just a final comment for me, at Children's Commissioner Survey 2017 seemed to find that in, in Northern Ireland you were, you were looking at at least £215 per year. I, I think that's yes. probably, it's probably quite a conservative estimate. And then 25% more expensive in grammar schools. Yeah, so that was what the research found, was that the, the uniforms, and in particular I think the the PE kit for um, primary school uniforms were um, certainly more expensive for grammar schools. And the reason I think that I pointed that out was because um, it's been particularly highlighted in the Welsh guidance, um, and it has cropped up in research before, that um, parents will take into consideration um, you know, the cost of the school uniform um, and the overall cost of sending their children to school. Um, they will take that into consideration when they're considering the school. So mm -hmm. I suppose um, it's, it's worth um, thinking about really. Yeah. It actually, it's not for today, and I will move on here, but the, the cost of, of education, I think, was another survey by the Children's Commissioner, if indeed this wasn't the, 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 the wider Yeah, that was the, that was that was the survey, survey that it came yeah. from. Um, they were looking at the overall cost, and I think it was uh, like a thousand pounds a year or something they found for um, the overall cost of sending a child to school. Whether, and whether the that, whether that, a different part of it. Yeah, whether that varies between types of school as well, something that we exactly. could look at. But obviously yeah. today, the focus is on school uniform policy. So on that note, uh, let me bring in Nicola Brogan, MLA. Thanks, Chair, and thanks, Sinead. As, as Chris said, another um, really brilliant briefing and presentation. I'm um, sorry, briefing paper and presentation. And it is a really um, topical um, topic and um, something I've, I've really interested in personally. Um, so I suppose the first uh, main issue here, there's a range of issues you've highlighted, and the first uh, main one would be the cost. And I know OMA actually has a uniform exchange program where families or people can bring in um, uniforms that families who are in need of it can avail of. So obviously there is a real issue with the cost. And I think um, within your research paper you said 32% of families actually go in, in the north go into debt um, at the start of the school year, which is nearly a third of families in the north going into debt just to get a school uniform. I, I think those stats are really shocking, actually. Um, so suppose then that maybe leads me to the question about um, the, the school uniform payments. Are they inadequate or where, what? how do you view those? Yeah, so I think um, that's actually probably something I should have mentioned. Sorry. Um, Wales have um, a, 
everywhere has, I suppose, funding for um, um, school uniforms to a certain extent. I'm just going to get the figures here for ours. Um, I think it is £35 for a um, primary school pupil, um, £51 for post-primary or special school pupil, and then £56 if the child is over 15 in a post-primary, and then £22 for post-primary um, uh, physical education kit. Um, and generally, school pupils can usually get one um, allowance for the entire year. Um, and I suppose the commentators have highlighted that those grants, I mean, obviously, only cover a fraction of um, the cost of uh, the school uniform. And I've included one or two quotes there in the research on that Nuffield um, Foundation research um, that highlighted actually how little that uh, stretches across. I mean, when a pair of shoes could be, you know, 50 quid, that's pretty much. You know the, the, the money gone, and um, so um, in comparison to how it compares to other jurisdictions, um, I think in England it's very variable. I think it's down to the local authority as to um, how much they um, can contribute, and not every local authority um, has uh, grants available. Um, in Scotland, I think the grant is is hundred pounds per student, and then in Wales it is up to two hundred pounds for children um, who are transitioning to post primary because that's obviously been identified as a um, particular costly um, time for the student funds. And I think it's a, maybe one hundred and twenty five. Yeah, it's one hundred and twenty five um, for uh, primary school or for yes for primary school students. Um, and there, the, the eligibility around that is very much the same as um, for free school meals, um, which is the same here in Northern Ireland. The eligibility is based on, um, I suppose, the certain benefits that you're um, receiving, but generally it's the same process as for free school meals. But I suppose, yeah, I think, as to your question, it probably isn't adequate enough to cover um, the costs if they are as what's being found in the research. Yeah, they definitely don't seem to be Sinead. Um, but listen, we'll leave that there. Uh, uh, thanks for that. Just another point I want to make whenever you raise the issue of um, uniforms and washing them and some blazers and skirts having to be dry cleaned. I remember um, during the pandemic, I'm not sure if it's still the case now, but schools wanted uniforms washed daily. So some parents either had to have um, uniforms for five days a week or were washing them all the time. And even the cost of that there, a number of parents had kind of mentioned that to me about the increased cost of having to wash uniforms, like the full uniforms so often. Um, I kind of just want to move on then to the gender stereotypes that you had mentioned as well. Um, so I, I, I don't think you've actually touched upon this, but I, it's been raised with me before about females or girls who are expected to wear skirts whilst on the period and feeling really uncomfortable with that there. So I'm not sure it's even been discussed yet, but um, it's something that has been raised with me before. And this particular person had brought it to the attention of, I think it was the school principal, and like, there was no changes made. And I suppose they felt aggrieved and thought it was unfair that somebody else was telling them how their daughter should be feeling. Sorry, can um, I just interrupt there? I, I'm actually finding it very difficult to hear you at the moment. Can I just check one second on my connection and just see, can I um, maybe make some um, adjustments yeah, sure. to it? Go ahead. No Sorry. Sorry. One of the young people in the original youth engagement did mention that she had campaigned herself personally to get yes, to our that's right, yeah. and she had been allowed but then but not everyone else. So I think that's where the initial interest for the committee came from actually. And I think Maybe yes. a letter about it too, did 
Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, hopefully that will make some difference. Um, I don't know what's wrong. I never normally have any issues with connections, so typically enough okay. I would have a right now. Can you hear um, me okay, Sinead? Yeah, I can just hear you there now, yeah. I'll try and speak up a bit for you as well. So basically, Brilliant. it was about um, girls on the period and still having to wear skirts, even though they weren't feeling comfortable doing that there. Um, and it'd been raised with me a number of times, and I, I was just reminded that, was, that issue came up in one of the youth engagement um, events we held um, a few months back as well. So is it something that um, you've come across as being an issue for girls or what? Um, not specifically around um, periods, but I would imagine that it, it, it's probably part of the overall um, issues that girls have highlighted around comfort and practicality, um, and in general, that concept of movement. Um, that was something that was raised kind of um, in the research a number of times around just the practicality of, say, girls sitting on um, science lab chairs in, in schools, um, you know, having to get up and present at the board, um, generally having to do any activity in the classroom that requires movement. Um, that that was frequently raised so I suppose not specifically on periods but it, I mean it, it would be part of that whole thing and particularly around the uniforms as well the more traditional uniforms um, and the practicalities of that and um, I suppose it would fall under that it's not something specific that's come up but it was part of the general package it doesn't, doesn't seem like such an unnecessary distraction like it is distracting them from their learning if they're worrying but when they stand up but how they look or if they're scared of something right or whatever. It just seems unnecessary and definite option should be there for them. Well, that, that is kind of what the, um, there's particular body of research being done with Australia and um, I think it's called the School Uniform Agenda is the body. And, and that is their particular point that rather than focusing on, I suppose, and I mean, this isn't constant, but it's a consideration, like rather than focusing on just, um, you know, their academics, they're, they're having to consider issues around movement. And even down as far as primary school where, um, I suppose girls are, you know, there's more activity-based um, play with regard to learning things in school and sitting on the floor and getting up from the floor. And it's just generally something that maybe they shouldn't have to be worried about, but they are. Yeah, shouldn't have to think about it. Um, just finally then, you have, and we've mentioned this, Sinead, about, about PE. And I suppose my point is, what I was thinking when you were, you were explaining that is, obviously there's been, there's been such a focus on um, mental health and well-being since covid um, for our children and young people and I think physical activity plays such a key part there with um, ensuring that like there is mental well-being or like mental health and well-being is prioritised um, so and I think really we should be doing all we can to promote PE within schools and again those stats around girls not wanting to participate because they've been um, made, made wear skirts as well as you know it's, it's a fact potentially is affecting their mental health and maybe um, even the physical health in other ways as well, you know. So I think that's another point that should be um, discussed. Sorry, again, guys, I only caught part to that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Um, that was my final point anyway, Sinead. It was just about the need for um, physical activity to help um, mental health and well-being and the fact that girls, are, if they aren't participating in PE because of uniforms, then it is also potentially affecting their mental health and well-being as well. Yeah, I mean, that is something that's been raised. I mean, the Department of Education um, acknowledged that in their, um, I suppose, their policies for school uniforms, that it, it, it's one of a number of factors that could, um, I suppose, influence girls' participation to participate in PE, but yeah, absolutely. Okay, Sinead, thank you for that. Thanks, Chair. Thanks. Sorry about the interruption there, Nicola. Sorry about that. Thanks, Nicola. Mm -hmm. And Sinead, we'll, we'll, we'll all uh, do our best to speak as clearly as we can, given that connection is not the best. 
Can I yeah. uh, ask if Robin Newton, MLA, is available? Okay, I can move to Daniel McCrossan, MLA. Might be some connection issues here. We'll try Robbie Butler, MLA. Are we still there? I think he's dropped off. It's showing that he's yeah. there, Chair. Okay, or uh, yeah, Diane Dodds, MLA. Yeah, thank you. Um, Sinead, I also having terrible problems hearing. Um, and I was just wondering, is that the connection in Parliament buildings that's the issue as opposed to us? Um, but anyway, I, I really am interested. I always think good government is lesser government, so I'm always for lesser legislation rather than more legislation. Um, um, but I was wondering, has there been any um, work done on uh, the effectiveness of placing uh, this uh, legislation around uniforms and a statutory footing in Wales? And no, I think uh, mainly because it's only been relatively recently introduced in 2019 and the new guidance, um, statutory guidance for um, England is due to come in in autumn of this year. Um, it's not for, they don't have to, I suppose, abide by it for this year because obviously it's coming in so close to the school term. So no, not as of yet. Um, I suppose that is something that would be interesting um, to see what kind of impact it does have, uh, if any, I suppose, on um, the costs that are associated with it. Thank you. That's it. I, uh, extremely interesting. Um, I, I am very pro school uniforms, but I want practical school uniforms. So, I'm, and and I think the cost issue is massive. And I think it's it's there's a bit of a, a, a the market in this is a bit tied up um, in certain ways. So, um, anything that can be done around that, but. But really interesting presentation. Yeah, and I think that there there wasn't um, certainly in the research that I read, and, and, I, um, and I suppose I was looking at cost and gender specifically, but there wasn't any great, um, you know, didn't seem to be any great desire to get rid of school uniforms or to you know have sweeping changes in that regard. I think it's more just that they are more practical um, for everybody really, and hence the kind of introduction of the gender and um, neutral school uniform policies. Thank, thanks, Sinead. Thanks for that question, Diane. I, th I think that's a fair point, Diane, as well, that the, the research does seem to be supporting the benefits of school uniform. Um, even, even Sinead, as you, you said earlier, from a, from a poverty point of view, um, but the, the cost, the accessibility, the neutrality and the, the appropriateness of the, of the uniform does seem to be proven challenging. Um, thanks for that. Can I, can I bring uh, Harry Harvey, MLA, in to finish? Thanks. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you, Sinead. Um, again, it's costs. I think schools could be more, evolved, more involved, um, especially pre-warned policy. I think that, I know you mentioned different regions have different policies and doing things different ways. Nicola mentioned that um, OMA had a good return scheme. I think that's excellent. I think that Everywhere should have that. It should be more pu pushed for schools to do it. Also, think that prices could possibly be capped. You know, so yeah. yeah. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Harry. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's something that has emerged is um, that schools are increasingly doing things like um, having those sort of um, swap shops where um, parents can, I suppose, exchange uniforms that are in, in decent condition, um, and I suppose that does help. 
reduce the cost. And there are a number of initiatives that have been brought in in England and Scotland just generally at looking at um, poverty proofing the school day um, and, and making education more accessible. Um, and one of the things that they do highlight is those kind of community initiatives and um, that schools should become involved in having those regularly available, this kind of the idea of the uniform swap shop. I think, I mean, in a lot of homes, there'll be a lot of uniforms hung up and parents even not having the facility to dispose of them or have anyone else reuse them. So if it was pushed, it would be a good thing. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Harry. Um, just going to give other members that were experiencing some connectivity issues to uh, see if they wish to ask any question or comment. I think Daniel McCrossan might uh, have... Reconnected, Daniel. Can you hear me? You want to wish a, or you wish to ask a question? Yes, uh, Chair. Thanks very much. Um, I, I'm having difficulties with signal today. It's cutting in and out a lot. I think it's the internet. Just the assembly provided the office morning. How do you reset it? Um, thanks very much, uh, Sinead, for your presentation. Uh, this is an important subject, uh, particularly uh, at this time of the year, uh, as we. Uh, see parents uh, very soon prepare their children for returning to uh, a new school year. Um, I just have one question. Parents are already feeling the pressure of providing the uniform for their children in September, as I've already said. From your, your research and other jurisdictions, are there three uh, quick fixes that could be put into place here to help parents with the financial burdens immediately? Um, well, I think there's probably a number of things that have been highlighted in the guidance, particularly in the Welsh guidance um, that's come out, that, that could um, assist parents. And it would be down to the schools making those choices around what kind of uniforms that they choose. So, for example, choosing um, colours, basic colours um, and basic styles rather than, um, I suppose, you know, those kind of styles that are more available in um, the sole supplier shops. Um, I don't know whether I suppose that's a quick fix because it would require the schools changing their policy, but um, things like those uniform swap shops that have been mentioned um, could reduce the cost um, if schools could get them up and running. Um, so there are various community, community initiatives um, that I suppose could take place that could maybe reduce the cost, which as um, has been mentioned, there are some in OMA. Um, but there are probably ways that schools could change their uniforms as well. Um, but again, I don't know if they would be quick fixes, um, but things like the uh, those uniform soft shops and things would certainly help. Um, that would be my main takeout from the, um, the, the research, but I suppose overall it's like changing school uniforms and changing that with the sole suppliers that would probably have the most impact. Yeah, a number of schools in uh, West Trone use it, quite a number in, in, in Strabane as well, and it's proven to be very effective, and um, we've been engaged with them for some time in relation to it, so I'd like to see more do it, but I think Harry has a very strong point uh, in that regard, but uh, thanks very much, uh, Sinead, for that. No worries, Daniel, thanks. Thanks, thanks, Daniel. Okay, members, I think that's our, our questions for today. Sinead, uh, another uh, sincere thank you for the, the work that you've done to help us in this regard. We'll obviously follow up a few of those matters with the Department of Education and, and keep in touch with you. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Okay. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove Sinead and add members back into the spotlight and ask the clerk to summarise any actions resulting from the briefing? Um, members, I think the first thing um, that we might like to do is to um, ask schools what their policies are. Um, and inquire into the costs of uniforms um, in each school. 
Um, also, uh, Diane made the point of um, you know market forces. Um, so it might be interesting to ask schools, you know, whether supply of the approved uniform is restricted to particular retailers. Um, also, then um, the guidance in Northern Ireland is non-statutory, and uh, as Sinead pointed out, uh, that creates some issues for um, anyone who did want to try to. Uh, have redress uh, you know against restrictions that it imposed on them and um, there's not a lot of opportunity to challenge um, so you know perhaps we should ask the department why the uniform guidance here is non-statutory um, as Sinead said um, there hasn't been any work yet done on the effectiveness of putting guidance on a statutory footing in Wales simply because it's too new um, but maybe the department will have an insight into that for us um, so really the issues of cost and gender neutrality, practicality um, of, of uniform um, and the fact that there isn't really um, substantive uh, evidence to reinforce the things that we think about uniform, um, you know, in terms of behaviour, um, those came across very strongly in the report, so we'll reflect some of those in a letter to the department. Um, there was an example as well, um, in fact a few people, a few members as well as Sinead, cited um, instances where um, students got together, or pupils got together and made their voices heard about what they wanted, particularly in terms of voting for trousers, and that that could um, prompt a change then in the school policy. Um, but really, if these things um, are, are self-evident, perhaps it should be led centrally. Um, so the adequacy of uniform grants then is an issue that came up for a few members. Um, and. There was a lot of experience in the room of uniform exchange programmes, which is wonderful. You know, recycling and and sharing um, those those items so that they're you know not wasted and they're reused. Um, but again, you know, there should be um, support um, initially uh, from the outset for for parents buying these often quite expensive items. There was a bit of discussion of the pricing as well and. Um, the idea that perhaps you know the prices should be capped. Um, so those are the issues that I would be reflecting in letter to the department. If that's yeah, thanks right. for that, uh, Clark. That sounds like a concise summary. Yeah, uh, members wish to add any other comments or, or questions to to those proposed actions. Content. That's great. Okay, members. Thank you. I move then to agenda item eight, correspondence and refer members to page 146, where we have 17 items of correspondence and a summary note at page 147. Clark, do you wish to speak to the correspondence, please? Thanks. Thank you. Just moving down to it. Um, um, okay. In respect of the room as well, I think there's a lot to um, for everyone to deal with because we're in hybrid today. We're only in hybrid to look at the artwork, so we'll be in the relative safety of fully virtual again next week. Um, okay, so um, item 82, members, on page 150 of your packs is a response from the Minister of Education on mandatory autism training and guidance on restraint and seclusion. Um, the Minister notes the committee's support for mandatory training and has indicated that she will keep the matter under review. Um, so previously, um, there was more of a um, uh, complete answer in terms of no, the, the department is not in favour of mandatory training. Um, so that's been changed 
a little. The response also states that the Department has no plans to issue further interim guidance on restraint and seclusion prior to publication of revised guidance. Um, so members will recall that the interim guidance um, issued recently uh, didn't address um, seclusion and mechanical constraint and chemical constraint. Um, so members, are there any um, views that you want to express on this response? No, I, th I think we'll, we'll need to note that and consider further action, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Item 83 on page 151 is a response from the Department following the Committee's request for further information on the number of students who have access to an appropriate electronic device um, and on a one device per child <coughs> basis. Um, the Department states that it doesn't have that information directly but it has provided data from the PISA 2018 study and the TIMS 2019 study. Um, the department indicates that up to June, almost 25,000 devices have been procured and provided to schools to support the most disadvantaged and vulnerable learners. Um, so members, just seeking your views on that response. Uh, members, I, I, would, I would propose that we write back to ask, is, is it, is it a, a, you know, a something that the department is going to try to establish. Um, I, I, I think we can accept that the information is not held to date, but um, I think um, I think it'd be interesting to know whether they have any plans to try to establish a better understanding with regards to uh, the, the digital uh, capacity of each pupil. A any members wish to come in on that? Yeah, well, just to agree with Agreed, you, Chair, yeah. because there's been raised so many times about the digital gap and digital divide there, and um, just those issues around access and how important it was with remote learning. So, any more information would be appreciated. So, I agree with you there, Chair. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, item 811 on page 255 is correspondence from the Pink Ladies Cancer Support Group on pesticide use and cancer prevention. Um, members, are you content to write to the Education Authority asking about the use of weed killers on the school estate? Content. Agreed. Thank you. Um, item 815 on page 262 is further correspondence from an individual who contacted the committee last week um, regarding the implications of children and young people wearing face masks. Um, the committee has already written to the Department and the Department of Health seeking updates on the position um, about wearing masks in schools and whether that will soon be you know, subject to review um, given the public health situation. Um, so the correspondent is, is elaborating the rationale and he's concerned about the health, education and social development of these young people long term. Um, and asking the committee again, would it, would it wish to commission research on the matter? So, members, um, let me know your views on that. Yeah, I think I, I think the the correspondent might be overestimating the capacity of the education committee in terms of research. Um, we 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 have the assistance of the um, the assembly research and information services, but. It sounds like the research that the correspondent is interested in would require a degree of of healthcare-based research. Uh, any other members who have read the correspondence wish to comment on that? 
We can see what evidence there is that's already been reported. Yeah. Or we can just... Yeah, I mean, obviously we had written to the department um, and we haven't yet heard the response from the department. Yet, no. no. Um, okay. Um, I don't think, I mean, the, the correspondence um, is, appears to suggest that um, if the Education Committee um, does not undertake research of this nature, that it would reflect the priority we place on the healthcare and education, um, some of our children and young adults will experience, which for the avoidance of doubt is not the case. Um, I think we will await the response from the Department of Education with regards to what work it is undertaking to review this matter um, and then consider any further action that the Education Committee would be in a position to take. Does that sound fair enough, members? Yep. Okay, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, item 817 on page 265 is correspondence about financial management at St Mary's High School, Brawla. Um, the committee has no role in the management of individual school finance, um, and if members are content, um, the committee could respond indicating that. Um, also, for information, the committee will be briefed in October by the Audit Office on its report on the financial capacity of schools. And that will give members an opportunity to ask about winding up finances then um, in the general sense rather than the specific. Yeah, okay. Members content? Okay, Thanks. thank you. Um, item 818 on page 266 is correspondence regarding student hardship payments, um, which is a responsibility of the Department for the Economy, um, I understand. Um, so members, on that being the case, are you content to forward that to the Committee for the Economy? Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. The other um, items of correspondence um, are according to the index, just on uh, page 147. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Agenda item 9. <laughs> Okay, Clark, thank you for uh, the correspondence items. That moves us to agenda item nine and our forward work programme. Can I refer members to the draft forward work programme at page 268 and ask the clerk to speak to the forward work programme? Um, members, the expert panel on persistent underachievement is unfortunately not able to attend the committee. Um, until after summer recess. Uh, we were hoping to hear from them next week. Um, CCAA did offer to attend um, next week's meeting, um, but next week is a three-hour meeting, um, so it's one of the committee's shorter meetings, um, and we do expect that the DE presentation on area planning in SEN and mainstream schools um, will engage the committee fully without adding another agenda item, to be honest. Um, as it's the last meeting before recess as well, the committee will also wish to agree some actions and scheduling um, for its forthcoming legislative programme, the report on youth engagement, and maybe even motions for debate in plenary. So are members content that we don't schedule anything additional for next week? No. Yeah. Um, 
I was Clark. I didn't realise that SIA did have availability to attend. Confirmed. Um, it might, if, if members are content, maybe they would defer to you and I to to check if we can accommodate that that briefing within the timings that are available there. Um, are, are members content in in principle that um, if SIA can be accommodated, that we would try to do that um, unless. Timings don't permit. Is that fair enough, yeah, Clark? Yeah, it was yeah. quite a limited time slot, yeah. um, and yeah. they could get their relevant personnel in place. Okay, so, um, uh, just in management. Okay, terms uh, it was a bit tight. If members have any view uh, in terms of the attendance of SIA next uh, next week in our final meeting, um, and or content to leave that to the clerk and I to try and manage. I'm happy. Content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll do our best on, on that front then. Okay. Um, any other forward work programme items that members wish to raise or content to endorse the forward work programme as agreed? Content, yeah. Agreed. Thank you. Okay. Members, any other business? No. Members, just, just in, in terms of any other business, um, obviously the Education Committee will meet next Wednesday. Um, at least on area planning and, and school places, if not with a, a brief interaction with SIA as well. But given that we are approaching the end of the school term, um, I hope you'll be content for me to take an opportunity to say uh, a huge and very sincere thank you to our education sector. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the huge significance of education, not only to children and young people, but to our entire way of life. Um, the Education Committee members don't agree on every um, approach taken for every aspect of our education system, but I think we are all in um, sincere agreement um, that we thank everyone involved in every aspect of our education sector for the sacrifice, leadership and resilience that they have shown throughout uh, the last year and throughout the duration of the pandemic and for the for the hope um, that they give our community. So can I, I say a, a huge thank you to everyone involved in our education sector um, on behalf of the Education Committee uh, and, and, and wish you well as you break to take some much needed respite to recharge and to get ready to rebuild uh, for the next academic year ahead. Thank you. Okay, members, if there's no other business, then... Um, oh, sorry, Clark is advising that... No, it's yeah. just the song, if you wanted to try okay. it again. Well, you've suggested so, so uh, over to you, Clark, if that is available. Okay. Members, we're going to uh, endeavour to see if we could um, broadcast the song that came forward as a result of our uh, youth engagement art project before we close okay. uh, business today. Thank you. My glamorous assistant over there is doing it. It really feels like the last day of school, doesn't it? <laughs> it is. School's out, isn't it? I think more volume would be good. Yeah. Is, that, is that audible on Starleaf? It should be, yeah. Um, Volume artist. Yeah. There we go. There we go. 
in this one, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much indeed uh, to Ed Reynolds and Wheelworks Art for that contribution to the youth engagement art uh, project. Okay, members, that brings our meeting to a close. The date and time for our next formal meeting is next Wednesday, the 7th of July, via Starleaf at 9am. The committee meeting does now adjourn. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Go. So